welcome to the very first year in review episode of Screaming Through the Ages, where I will be taking a look back on the horror movies of 2021 and the year in general. I am your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. Ever since I started the podcast, this has been one of the things I've been looking forward to most. This is usually one of my favorite episodes of the year of any podcast that puts it out, where people just kind of bounce off each other, which films they liked of the year and which ones came out on top for them. Before we get into everything, I know last episode I had mentioned there might be a contest and I've been bugging people to send me their top 10 list of the year, and if you were able to get yours into me, I will be reading it out on this episode. But I'm also going to do a little contest with this, and I'll be sending out a Blu-ray copy of my second favorite film of the year, my number two of the year, to one of the people that send me their top 10 horror list, whether that's through an email at screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com or on Twitter or wherever you can get it to me. I will put you in the drawing for that. Now, why not my number one? Because my number one isn't available yet. So simple as that. But you'll have to hang on here to see which one that turns out to be. I'm not going to be doing things by the book on this, I guess or the standard way of thinking, or what usually is done. And I love that you can get a top 10 list together and maybe five or 10 honorable mentions, but I feel like something kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Sometimes we don't get to give some films their due. So on this episode, I will be doing a top 25 list, as well as a list later of five of the films that did not make my top 25, but I think are underseen and still good films. So you're going to be getting 30 films from me that I'm ranking tonight, and I hope that you enjoy this format. I hope it's not too long, but I want to treat this more of like a celebration of the year and get some spotlight on some movies that maybe others aren't talking about. So instead of just focusing on what's my top 10 and ranking, I just want to make this a celebration and be able to highlight as many films that I enjoyed of this year as possible. And I will continue doing this top 25 year after year as long as I get good feedback on it and as long as there are enough horror films to review. Now, this might have been difficult in 2012, 2013 even, but the last few years I would have had no problem doing a top 25. So we'll see. As long as it's viable, I'll keep doing it this way. Kind of gives you a double-edged sword, though, because, you know, if something just missed your top 10 list and you're only giving your top 10, someone could maybe assume that it was number 11 or it was number 16 or it was close, but you're doing a top 25 and maybe maybe one of the more prolific releases of the year that doesn't make your top 25. At that point, someone's saying, ah, man, this guy really doesn't like that movie and it's pretty dropped pretty low. So uh, these are my opinions. These are the films I like. I tend to like films that maybe don't hit with a lot of people. Um, I watch a lot of films from other countries, and a lot of the times people I don't see reviewing favorably, but that's okay. And I watch a lot of these indie films that maybe some people don't like as well. But I'm just trying to be honest and give you the films that I loved, and I can't do anything other than that, than give you an honest look at what I thought the year was. You're not going to get any shame from me here. If you come at me, I would love to see everyone else's list, and that's kind of why I was asking for lists, because I want to see what everyone else loved and what everyone else is into, 
And even if we're not into the same things, I think that's really cool because even though I'm picking a top 25 here, I mean, I easily could say that I really enjoyed probably 50 or so horror films this year, at least. So it's very deep from that point. So I think a lot of people's top 10s, I still like to see just what combination of things you put into it and what you're picking over other films. I wanted to give kind of this broad overview of 2021 horror movies before we get started into other things on the list. Now, what's a year in review for horror movies without talking about Shudder? And Shudder always is putting out good content. It seems like the last couple years they've definitely ramped it up. But as with other years, Shudder was very hit or miss. Now, they put out a ton of content, whether that was a Shudder original that they kind of fostered from the beginning, whether that was a Shudder exclusive, which they put out the money to, you know, stream exclusively with them, or anything of that sort. Um, they were responsible for nine of the films in my top 25, whether that's Shudder original, Shudder exclusive, um, not necessarily something they're distributing and helping make, but definitely something that they had on their service and only their service, I believe. But on the other side of that, they were also responsible for nine of my bottom 15 films. So I think Shudder was very hit or miss, but when you put out the amount of stuff that they put on their service, and I'm not even talking about the old stuff, I'm just talking about the 2021 releases, there's an incredible amount of Shudder films there. You can also kind of apply that to the year as a whole. A lot of hit or miss films for me. 2021 in general was a bit of a step down from 2020 in certain ways and not in other ways. I think the top of 2021 is much stronger than the top of 2020. When I was putting like The Wretched as my number one film, I love The Wretched. I think it's a great film, but doesn't quite stack up to my number ones of other years. And you could say that for, you know, The Lodge and The Invisible Man and some of the others I had up there near the top is I don't think they stand up quite as well to the previous years where we've had these absolute classics. And I think 2021 delivered us a couple of really good films that stand up there at the top, and I think they could go toe-to-toe with releases from other years. So while it has that peak, though, there's also a bit of maybe not as strong stuff in the middle. Now, there are tons of films that I thought are good films, and I enjoyed watching them, and I think they're definitely worth a one-time watch. There weren't a ton of, I guess, standout films, and it got better as the year went along. I think at the midway point of this year, I was pretty discouraged, and I was thinking, oh man, this is just going to be one of those years where middle-of-the-road movie would make my top list, and I think it really redeemed itself, one, once the theater started getting back and going um, later in the year more, and two, we started getting getting some good stuff that I wasn't even anticipating at the beginning of the year. So we got some good surprise stuff the last few months of the 2021, and I think that really helped to bolster it and maybe put it up there on tier with 2020. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge fan of films from all over around the world, especially horror films. And I feel like this year it wasn't necessarily the usual suspects. We got a ton of films that I watched from all over the world, really. There were a couple that came out on top, but usually, I feel like I'm usually watching, you know, six, seven Korean films or something like that, and I didn't catch very many of those, so maybe that's one spot where I lagged. 
I'm really interested to see if anyone else has any like Korean films that they had found, but I know I watched a lot last year, so maybe we just didn't have many to kind of even out the releases, but I saw 105 horror films this year that I counted for 2020 films, and I'll just run down some totals here of what I'm seeing as far as from my list, and I saw 12 that were released by the UK, which even one was a Welsh film, which I don't know if I've seen a Welsh film before, so that was really cool, which that's that's typical. The UK puts out so many good films a year, and they have such a good production. And then we had seven by France, and I was not expecting this, because France does have a pretty good history, a pretty good track record, but I feel like recently they haven't put out a ton. And I know some of those were kind of co-productions with Belgium, but seven films from France this year, and most of them I really liked. I can't remember if there was a French film that I didn't really like. I don't know. I'll have to look back at that, but most of them were really strong. Uh, We also had three from South Korea, so again, very slow year for South Korea. We had two from the Netherlands, which I feel like we don't hear about often, and two from Ireland. Actually, it looks like we had three from Ireland. Sorry, I miscounted there, which usually has a few that comes out each year, so not surprising there. I mean, look at all these countries that had one film that I had watched this year, and there were 12 different ones. One film from Indonesia, which was not surprising. I'm actually feeling a little drought there because that one came out at the beginning of the year, and we haven't had anything since, so hopefully we get something else in 2022. Um, We had one from Australia. Again, not surprising there. Um, We did have one from Germany. We had one from India. One from Uruguay, Argentina. I don't know which country put that out or if it was like a true co-production. Couldn't figure that out. Um, One from Iran, one from Italy, one from Brazil, one from New Zealand, two I think I think I miscounted here. We actually had two from South Africa, so I forgot to count one there. One from Sweden and one from Taiwan. So that's a very big spread, and maybe those films, maybe we were digging a little bit deeper to try to find releases and to kind of beef up the slate, but I love the diversity there of all these different films coming from these different regions. That's not to mention North America, because... Canada put out a metric ton of movies this year that I had watched, at least the horror movies. So, but I always count that in with North America and count that just as much as like a domestic release as anything else. But Canada was very strong this year. And again, I tend to just really love these international films and I tend to be higher on them than some people in a lot of situations. And I think you'll see that as we go through my list. I just really love them. I don't know why, but there's just something that pulls me in about a lot of them. I also noticed there were so many homages and throwback films this year, and the 90s are definitely hot right now. I know we've had Fear Street, which kind of did 1994, and you got that 90s feel at the end of 1666 as well. And then you had Broadcast Signal Intrusion, which was this great kind of throwback to the 90s. I know last year we had um, The Call from Japan, I believe, and then we had Rent-A-Pow as well, so... This 90s nostalgia has really trended up here recently. And there's other throwback films that I'll mention tonight as well that kind of look at other eras, but there's a lot of those period pieces going around in horror right now. Now, we're going to take a look at the box office for horror, as I did with my 1990 year in review that I released back in October. And you can tell there's a huge difference from 1990 to 2021, even though the box office has been hit pretty hard Horror's still doing pretty well for itself, especially when put up against these huge budget films that are just going to demolish anything in their path anyway. 
It's been a rough couple of years for the box office in general, and these theater-released films. We've had films shuffled time and time again. I mean, we've seen my two most anticipated films for this year were my two most anticipated films for 2020. So with releases getting pushed, theaters being closed, and at reduced capacity, and it's really been hard. And it's nice to see that if there is the right film, fans and audiences are willing to get back into the theater. But there's kind of this other distressing piece of it that, I mean, it makes sense, but it really infuriates me. And we'll talk about that after we get through the rundown. I went ahead and put together the 15 highest grossing horror films. And if you remember in 1990, I think I had to go back all the way to like the 120 or 150 or something. I only made it as, I didn't even make it to 70 this time. So I made it close to 70, but I did not make it to 70 this time. And I was able to grab 15 films. So that's pretty good. The 15th highest grossing horror film for the year was The Night House, which surprised me. I know it didn't make a ton, but it made 7.1 million and was good enough for 67 overall in the box office. Number 14 was Last Night in Soho. So disappointing. Uh, 14 and 13 are very depressing, but we had Last Night in Soho. It made 10.1 million, and it finished 62nd overall. And number 13 to go along with that was Antlers, which finished with 10.6 million and was 58th overall. Doesn't get much better with 12, which was Malignant. 13.3 million, good enough for 55th overall. Now that tells a story right there that we had these three higher profile films from two very high profile directors, at least. Cooper not as big with Antlers, but James Wan and Edgar Wright are huge as far as directors go. And they weren't able to cobble together hardly anything at the box office, which is just so depressing. And those were, now Malignant was obviously released with HBO Max as well, but Antlers and Last Night in Soho were theater exclusive, and Last Night in Soho did so bad that they had to rush out a premium VOD at home option not too long after its release. The Unholy is at number 11, and when I saw this, I was like, what? The Unholy? (laughs) That film that released in April, I didn't see it, but I know it's got like a 2.0 or something on Letterboxd. Doesn't seem to be received very well, but apparently people flocked out to see this thing. Because it made 15.5 million and finished 49th. It finished in the top 50 for the year. Number 10 is Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. That finished with 15.8 million and was 46th overall. We don't need to talk about that one any further. Y'all know how I feel about it. Number 9 is Spiral from the Book of Saul. And this is the, of course, Saul spinoff with Chris Rock. That finished with 23.2 million and was 42nd overall. Number 8, Escape Room Tournament of Champions finished with 25.2 million and was good enough for 39th on the year. That one surprised me as well. Just this movie that was released in the middle of summer that I had no intention of ever going and seeing, and I might see it one of these days, but surprised to see that one did well too. Number 7, Don't Breathe 2 pulled in 32.6 million and finished 33rd. Number 6, The Forever Purge, finished with 44.5 million and was 26th overall, so almost cracking the top 25 there. Number 5 is Old with 48.2 million, and that was good enough for a 23rd place finish. Number 4 is Candyman, and that finished up with 61.2 million or 18th overall at the time of this recording. So that's kind of where we make our jump. Like, 
we've got Tournament of Champions sitting there at like 25 million, and then we jump up with Don't Breathe, and then Forever Purge takes another step up, and Old takes a step up, and then Candyman really takes a step up there, and it's right in league with number three, which is The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which finished with 65.5 million and was good enough for a 17th place finish. Number two is Halloween Kills, which finished with 92 million, and that is the giant leap up there from that 65.5. That one also released on Peacock, and it's funny that The Conjuring released on HBO Max as well. Um, The number one film did not go on a streaming service, but those two did it while still being available on streaming services. And Halloween Kills finished appropriately 13th overall. And number one, A Quiet Place Part 2, not even close, 160 million and finished in the top 10. It was seventh overall for the year. Now, before we get on to some analysis, I do want to say I pulled these numbers before Spider-Man, Nightmare Alley, Kingsman, any of those released. So these probably aren't going to be completely accurate, but as of, you know, mid-December, they're accurate. The important thing is there aren't any more big horror films coming out. So yeah, Quiet Place Part 2 probably is going to get bumped by Spider-Man before the end of the year and who knows what else. But the horror, the top 15 is not going to really change that much probably. I don't think so. Anyway, I digress. Now what do we see here? I mean, the biggest trend obviously, and I talked about it before, what are the movies that are making money? Their sequels, their remakes. We had A Quiet Place Part 2 at number one, sequel. Halloween Kills, at two, sequel. Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, at three, sequel. And Candyman at four, which is like a remake sequel. Kind of sequel, pretty much a sequel. So the top four films are sequels. Um, Old is something new at five, but The Forever Purge, then Don't Breathe 2, Escape Room Tournament of Champions, Spiral, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. That's nine of the top ten are sequels or new films in an existing franchise or property. And that's pretty telling. And then we get these new inventive ideas like Last Night in Soho, Antlers, Malignant, Old, you can say, to an extent. And Old did very well for itself, but the other three were kind of dead on arrival as far as box office goes. And then you have somehow The Unholy making $15.5 million. So leads me to just say I don't understand horror fans. I hear all the time that people are tired of the same sequels and they want to see new ideas. And here we are. You've got your chance to support things in the theaters that are new ideas and brand new exciting films. And you don't. And I can tell you right now, I went and saw The Night House. I went and saw Last Night in Soho. I went and saw Antlers. So all three of those films in the theater. And I did not see Halloween Kills in the theater. Now, you know, I saw Quiet Place Part 2 in the theater and... Candyman and a lot of these other films that were sequels, but I went out there and supported the new ideas too. And it's just really sad when we see something like Halloween Kills coming out and just killing the box office when it's like the, you know, when it's the umpteenth entry in that series. I wouldn't care. I love to see Halloween Kills and Quiet Place Part 2 placing as high as they did. And I like that there's some strong middle ground there too with Conjuring and Candyman and Old. Um, and Forever Purge, even though, you know, some of those qualities varying. But I would have just liked to see more support for the other films and would have liked to at least see them in the horror top 10. But that's about all I have to say about that. That'll be it for my old man grumpy rant, probably for this evening. I'll try not to do any more. 
it's just sad when nine of the top ten horror films that grossed for the year were already existing properties. Before we go ahead and get into the list proper, I wanted to lay out a couple things. First of all, I'm pretty lenient when it comes to what counts as horror and what doesn't. I don't really get bogged down too much in what's horror and what isn't. Um, I like to include as much as possible, and especially thrillers to our pretty much across the board, most thrillers would be included as horror movies for me. Now, I'm not going to add something like Godzilla vs. Kong or something like that. That's still kind of just to the, you know, the left or right of horror, whichever direction we're going in there. But it's just, I just don't like to get caught up in the genre specifications. And that's very, that's fine if you do. I love seeing the different permutations. I love when I rate a movie and I'm like, well, is this horror? I don't even know. And then I'll go and look at you know, four other, four or five other people that had seen it and added it to a list, and I'm like, well, they have it on their horror list. Well, they don't have it on theirs. It's fun to see that. Also, on release dates, I go strictly off of when I was able to watch the film. I don't care what IMDb or Letterboxd or your grandma says. Whenever a film was released in the U.S. and was available for me to view, not at a film festival, not at a special one night or one week event. Whenever this thing was pretty widely available, whether that be VOD or on a streaming service or through a theater, that's when I count. So if you would look at my list on Letterboxd, the years are probably going to go all over the place. Drives me insane when I try to look at things by years and they're just all over the place. And this is one thing I'm stricter on for sure. Now, if you look at my list over on Letterboxd, once I get past like the year 2000, I gave up on trying to put things out in there, you know, when they were available in the US and I just started going off their IMDb date. So even I had my limit on that. But for 2021, it'll be anything that was first available this year, whether that's theater, VOD, streaming service, etc. And that's it. So, without any further ado, I'm going to start right into my top 25. Okay, this is where it's going to get a lot of fun, and I'm going to get a lot of hate, I feel like, for these lists. As much as I can, I'm going to try to read the synopsis for each of these off of Letterboxd, and I'll try to make up my own if Letterboxd isn't cooperating. I did cut my list off a little early this year. I was able to see just about everything I wanted to see. Like I said earlier, I have seen 105 films as I have to classify as horror this year, and there were a couple more little stragglers, but nothing that I thought so important to delay this, and just wanted to get it out as kind of a Christmas present to the listeners. So at number 25, I have Bloodthirsty, and this was directed by Amelia Moses, and runtime of only 82 minutes, so it is a much shorter film. Let's go ahead and give that synopsis. When indie singer Gray struggles to write her sophomore album, she teams up with a mysterious producer at his secluded cabin. Though their bond strengthens her music, it also starts to irreparably alter Gray's body and mind. It's a pretty good idea of what we've got. Yeah, we've got this singer going out to this secluded cabin to try to record and working with this producer who was this famous like boy band producer in the 90s she's trying to get her second album off the ground and just kind of recapture the magic of her first album so she goes out there with her girlfriend and they're just staying out there in isolation and trying to record her girlfriend does not think it's a good idea and continuously keeps saying that it's not a good idea and telling her to leave but gray just won't listen the actress playing gray here is Lauren Beatty. I saw her in another film this year, which was Bleed With Me, and this was the first that I had seen her in anything. 
but I think she did a really good job, and I really like her relationship with her girlfriend and how the two of them interact. Now, right off the bat, yes, this is a werewolf film, but it is very much a slow burn werewolf film. There's mostly drama leading up to the horrific events, which don't happen until very late in the film, and even when they do, it's not really full-on horror, I'd say. Um, I just really enjoyed that build, and I enjoyed the characters and the drama and the whole situation, because we, we got a lot of interesting situations this year, I feel like, that people were put in. And they're kind of like everyday situations that people would be going through, but we don't typically see them. We kind of see the same stuff usually. So kind of same premise for these films, but set in scenarios we're not necessarily familiar with. And I like that about this. Probably my favorite scene in the movie is the transformation scene. I'll try to leave it a little um, ambiguous here, but this transformation scene is really cool. Now, I don't necessarily like the design of the werewolf itself in the film, but the transformation goes above and beyond. It's kind of in this very specific location, which is cool, and it's kind of like they're trapped in that location, and you just see this awesome lighting and it keeps panning out to other things, like it goes to a wide shot, and it'll go somewhere else, and you're just seeing from so many different angles, you're seeing the transformation up close, you're seeing it far away outside of the room, you're seeing just the lighting kind of flicker on and off, and hit just right in certain places, and you're hearing a song as well that Gray had recorded play during this, so it's just this really cool striking scene that I like later on in the film. I also like to see, as the synopsis was stating, um, that her life starts to spiral. I don't like that. I don't wish that on the character. But you do get a real look at just the spiral along of her life along with her relationship with her girlfriend as this goes on. Once again, not a ton here for hardcore horror fans. And that maybe keeps it from going a little higher. I feel like we're in this period with werewolf films where we don't want to go full-on werewolf. And it's kind of like an indie drama that has some werewolf elements, and I feel like that is the trend, and that's been the trend for probably almost a decade. We just do not get enough good full-on werewolf films, and we need to get more of those. This one could have been a lot better if we would have played that up a little more. I know that the werewolf story is so tragic, and it's kind of um, perfect for these type of indie dramas, and I get that, but I would have just liked to see a little more. I do think the real star of the show is how the story unfolds and the character building, but unfortunately we're still waiting on that elusive next great werewolf movie. Now, number 24 is probably going to get some hate all over the place, but shouldn't be really a surprise for you if you listen to my Halloween watch guide I did back in October. At number 24, I have Night Teeth, which was directed by Adam Randall. And this one's streaming exclusively over on Netflix. A college student moonlighting as a chauffeur picks up two mysterious women for a night of party hopping across L.A. But when he uncovers their bloodthirsty intentions and their dangerous shadowy underworld, he must fight to stay alive. From what I see, people do not like this movie. And I don't know, it kind of gives me similar vibes to... And not in like the comedy direction, but to films like The Babysitter or Happy Death Day. That I believe are films that are pretty polarizing and have really split people over the last couple years. 
and I think it's got that same feel because it's just a fun horror movie that's kind of glossy and trying to have a good time. It's not going to push any envelopes or shake any boundaries, but I do think it's fun. I mean, you've basically got this guy who is filling in for his brother who's a chauffeur and gets these two clients and kind of gets into more trouble than he bargained for. And he starts seeing some things as he's going on this journey waiting for these two women and turns out that he's living in a society of vampires. And that's not a spoiler. Vampires are mentioned at the beginning of this film. One of the things I like most is that basically these vampires have these rules governing them. And I don't think they're really, they're kept and upheld by the vampires, but it seems more like they were brought down on them by the normal humans, really. They're like confined to a certain area. They're not allowed to drink blood unless people are willing. And there's some others, but it's really this cool world that they set up that shines to me. I just think it's a lot of fun. I think the world building here is fun. I think this whole hierarchy of vampires is fun. Kind of reminds me of something similar to Blade, where there's like this vampire underworld, or even something like Vampire the Masquerade, where there's this whole society and kind of hierarchy and different clans and stuff of vampires. I really get that feel with this film. I really enjoy that, and I really like to see that and that kind of structured society. It's really my favorite thing about this movie. Honestly, some of the action might get a little over the top, although it's not too bad. It doesn't verge into full action horror for the most part. There's some action scenes, there's some cheesy stuff in here, but I think it plays it pretty straight, and again, I just love the world they build. I'm really, I would really be curious, and I hope this did well on Netflix, because I would love to see a prequel that had Megan Fox's character. She's with um, someone else, and I can't remember who else was playing beside her, but they're kind of They're part of this council and part of the structure, and I would love to see, you know, how they got into that position and more of their characters kind of leading this society and making decisions or how it all got set up in the first place. Or I would see a sequel um, from the fallout of the first film and kind of see how things are set up because we do kind of get a toppling here of the hierarchy um, throughout the film and... Yeah, I just really like it. I don't understand the hate for this film. I think it's just this fun vampire film that sets up a cool world. What more could we ask for? I mean, I know we get a ton, as opposed to Bloodthirsty, we do get a ton of vampire films, and usually we're getting some vampire action in there. Werewolves are much different than most of the vampire films we've got recently. But I still think it's worth your time. I still love this movie, and I really thought that Debbie Ryan and Jorge Lindenborg Jr., both did really good as the leads as well. So not a whole lot of negatives for me, maybe just some toning down of certain things. And other than that, I really liked it. All right, and here's where we can start playing the drinking game of drink every time. Trey puts a foreign film on his list. At number 23, I have Candisha. Candisha? Candisha? Candisha. Something like that. Um, This is exclusively over on Shudder. And you're going to have to also excuse my pronunciation of the names here because French is not my strong suit, but Alejandre Bustillo and Julianne Maori. And this is the directorial team that brought us both Inside, which is a classic French extreme horror film, and The Deep House from this year as well. This is a French film, but has some Moroccan lore to it, which is really cool because we don't see... Hardly anything from there, or really North Africa period when it comes to horror films that I can remember. So it's cool to have that little piece in there. Uh, Let's start this off with a synopsis. 
While working on their graffiti pieces in a condemned apartment building, best friends Amelie, Bintu, and Moriana, Morjana <laughs> discover a name scribbled on one of the walls, Candisha. Moriana recognizes the name as that of a powerful demon found in Moroccan folklore summoned by women to exact vengeance on men. When Amelie is later assaulted by her ex, she remembers Moriana's story and, angry and upset, impulsively summons the spirit. The next day, her ex is found dead, and the legend is true, and now Kandisha is on a killing spree. So, that verges a little bit into kind of spoilerish territory. I guess it's not. It's still really setting up things, but that's the inciting action. Um, that's what's going on in this film, and... It's just so cool, the villain design in this movie, the design of Kandisha. And I love her design. I love that she is very brutal. I mean, the whole legend and the whole urban legend of this, and we're going to have several films that talk about and discuss and kind of take place around urban legends as I'm recording through this and going through this top 25. So this is the first of many, and that's something that's near and dear to my heart. So I love that we're getting this Moroccan legend and it, the whole premise is you call Candisha to avenge you when men have done you wrong, and Candisha will come and punish the men. Well, doesn't exactly go as planned for our main character, and things start to escalate. This, since they've already talked about it, I might as well get into it. I really love the part where they summon, or where she summons Candisha. Um, as it alluded to, she comes home from this brutal assault from her ex and she kind of gets in the shower and she's bleeding and she takes her blood and kind of draws this symbol on the shower and summons Candisha. It's really kind of heartbreaking what happens there and it's really heartbreaking all along. I mean she wants to get that revenge because she's been assaulted and treated terribly but the spirit isn't so easily satiated that it's just going to take one soul and go away. Um, some of these characters you get really attached to and you really get to know, and it's devastating when we lose them. Sometimes it just kind of comes out of nowhere and you're so surprised by some of these kills. I think that's really impactful and the thing that ultimately made this stick with me. Um, we also get, you know, as I said, this is a unique tale. And, of course, with every kind of, like, demon, we bring in some kind of religious figures or religious aspects. And I love both of the characters that play kind of the priest or the exorcist or whatever you want to call them in this film. One is just this very, well, he's kind of likable once you come around to him, but he's a younger guy and he's kind of going out and going to seek this outside help of this guy who's not really associated with the, the church anymore and... That whole the whole way that plays out when those two gets involved is incredible. I would definitely recommend this one. Um, I loved Candisha, and I just think it's one of the more unique things that came out of there this year. I think we had a lot of unique stuff to come out this year, but Candisha is definitely one of them. All right, if you just took that drink, you're going to take another one, because here we've got Tailgate, which is a Belgium and Netherlands kind of co-production. Tailgate comes in at number 22 on my list. And it was directed by Ludwig Kriens. Kriens? I don't know. I'm going to be terrible at pronouncing these names throughout the night. But um, we've got a cocksure, road-raging family man finds himself pursued and terrorized by the vengeful van driver he chooses to tailgate. 
if you're listening to that, you're probably thinking unhinged. And there are some major unhinged vibes here as we get another road rage thriller. And this film's pretty vicious and it's pretty tense. Basically what happens early on in the film is this guy's trying to make it on time to his parents' house and he's stuck behind this guy who's going way too slow on the highway and he gets up and he's riding his butt. And of course there's this line of traffic, but he's got his family in the car. So he starts flipping out on this guy. Eventually he's able to get around him When they get off to stop at a rest area or a gas station, um, he's confronted by this man, and that kind of starts it all. And there are several times here and several outs where this guy could just swallow his pride and he could avoid it. And I know it's kind of crazy because, yes, maybe the guy that is in the van and is out there to kind of... And the guy who's going to terrorize, you know, this family. Yeah, maybe he's a little off anyway, and maybe he is doing this on purpose. But you could just avoid being the victim of him by, one, not, like, laying on your horn and being a a jerk on the highway. Which I know it's hard. It's hard because it's a tough situation, and it gets you infuriated. I get it. Road rage is a real thing. But then he has other chances to apologize or to handle the situation better, and he just doesn't. He just can't swallow his pride, and he just keeps on going. So things start to get scary. And my thing is, yeah, that's one thing if you're by yourself, but you're with your wife and your kids, and you start to stir up this hornet's nest. And I love where it goes, though. And it's, like I said, very vicious, very tense. It doesn't hold anything back. And it doesn't waste much time in getting into it either. We have a very tense confrontation um, at that said gas station. And then from there, it's like off and going. And he's not holding back. He's not trying to scare this guy. He's out there looking to harm them. And you get that early on. It's hard to root for this dad character, though. Um, I do want to root for, like, the wife and the kids. And I do care that the guy is going to get hurt because, you know, it's his family. And I don't want his family to be upset or sad or anything. But he's kind of a jerk and really pushes this situation when he shouldn't. But it's really stressful and tough to see this whole family in harm's way. And they're certainly not spared from any of the horror that goes on. And that actually, I I saw this movie based on what I saw over on Letterboxd from Armored Foe, who's on Letterboxd and Twitter. Um, It's Will. And, Will, I know you led me astray with Resident Evil, but you really redeemed yourself with this recommendation. So, you're off notice, sir. I'm just kidding, buddy. But I do really appreciate getting introduced to Tailgate. I saw a couple of people watching it, but I think... Uh, Will, you were the first one that I saw watch this film, so I had to check it out. All right, up next at number 21, we're going to get to one of the creepier movies, at least in certain aspects that I watched this year, and that is Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Broadcast Signal Intrusion was directed by Jacob Gentry. And the summary is as follows. In the late 90s, a video archivist unearths a series of sinister pirate broadcasts and becomes obsessed with uncovering the dark conspiracy behind them. Now, that's wins on several levels for me right away because you have this, because you have this 90s setting and I'm loving the throwbacks to the 90s that are going on like I talked about. But you also have, it's like that dark depths of the 90s that were kind of always put out in legend there you know this is the the matrix type stuff you know it's the um the hackers and everything and these people that started to live in chat rooms and on the internet and discuss stuff in the late 90s and i remember that time a little bit 
and it's such a cool period to go back to now when you look back at it maybe those guys weren't as cool as you think but it's certainly not matrix level of cool with these hackers or anything but it was all over and that was the time uh the first thing that i have to say is this just feels like like some kind of a creepy pasta i think there is a creepy pasta out there that talks about some kind of pirate show that would come on like and invade the signals and kids would watch it and Everything like that. And that's a really cool creepypasta. I think they made a TV show about that. I think it was over on Sci-Fi. The, um, oh, now I'm killing myself to remember what the name of that was. Oh, gosh. Candle Cove was the name of the creepypasta. Channel Zero. Channel Zero was what it was called. Anyway, that's a little off topic here. But with that, you have this same premise of, like, there's these pirate radio bot broadcasts. Broadcasts that aren't supposed to happen. Basically, people hacking in and sending something through to a television station and interrupting their normal broadcast with whatever they're putting on there. So we get this premise at the beginning. I think there are three of these that they figure out. There were three times that this happened in the lore or whatever it is. And you watch that video up front and it's pretty creepy. And you could see being extremely creeped out by that. But I think cable was in that time, still in the 90s and stuff. It was in that period where you could theoretically see that happening with you know someone hacking a station and getting in there and putting this message on especially some of the local stations because I think they're talking about you know three times it happens it was at different levels of broadcasting and but that video is very creepy and it kind of sets the tone and starts off this whole thing which is basically this kind of conspiracy going down a rabbit hole type thing to try to figure out what's going on and it's eating at this guy and you figure out why it's eating at him a little later and why He's willing to chase this thing down. Um, so he does have a good motive there, but he's got another character with him. And as they're going through, you really start to care about both of them. And you like the rapport that they've got going on between them. And it's just at one point, I guess a negative I have with this film is it's kind of thrown away at a certain point. He's just kind of, and I'm not going to say anything about what happens, but we kind of lose that connection or lose a character or something. And it just kind of drags it down a little bit for me there. And it does lose steam a little bit um, as we get deeper down the rabbit hole. By the time it gets to the ending, I don't know if I was 100% on board. This is one that starting off, I was like, oh, this could be a top 10, top 15 film for me. And then it just started to fall down a little bit as the story went on. I think there's still some really cool stuff. And I'm obsessed with conspiracy, creepypasta type things or this type of hacking or pirate radio broadcast. So I do love all that. And if you love that, I think you're going to enjoy it. It's not going to hit you hard with like a bunch of horror, but I think it's unsettling is where it gets you. To summarize, I love the concept of this film. I love how it starts and how it goes down and he's kind of investigating this thing. It kind of reminds me of something like Thesis. Check that out if that sounds interesting because I really enjoyed it and I don't know if people are if that's getting as much notice as it should be. Okay, at this point, I it's probably like we're in the top 20. It's like, Trey, where's the theater stuff? You're talking about this international stuff. You're talking about this low-budget streaming stuff. And these movies that, you know, some of them I haven't even heard about, Where where's your big stuff, you know? Well, I get one here at least. But if you're looking for theater releases to be dominated in this list, unfortunately, that's not going to happen this year. That's something where in past years, I think the theater releases have kind of 
overpowered anything else. But this was just a weird year for the theater, and so was last year. So I think we just have to take what we can get. Now, I'm not going to say there's not going to be any theater movies in here, big budget movies, because there are. But for right now, let me satiate that big budget picture by talking about Candyman. To back up to my opinion on the original Candyman, I wouldn't say that I put it up as a classic with a lot of other people. I think it's a very strong film. I really love the movie. It would definitely make probably a top 10 or 15 list of the 90s for sure. But I don't think I've regarded it quite as high as some people do. So knowing that coming into this, but you know, I do love the premise and the background of it. And I love the character of Candyman. It's just that first movie kind of failed to hit certain points. But on rewatching it this year before this movie came out, or after this movie came out, really, I did gain even a more appreciation of it. So there's that. Um, this is directed by Nia DaCosta, and summary reads, Anthony and his partner move into a loft in the now gentrified Cabrini. After a chance encounter with an old-timer exposes Anthony to the true story behind Candyman, he unknowingly opens a door to a complex past that unravels his own sanity and unleashes a terrifying wave of violence. Right off the bat, we have to talk about the filmmaking and the craft here because this is done exceptionally well. The visuals in this movie are so cool and so well done. I love the shadow puppet type thing and the cinematography and all that is top of the list for this year as far as that goes. Um, so I love everything from that kind of perspective. And, you know, I think the acting and the characters are really good too. I like a lot of the characters. I think they are for the most part, do a really good job. I especially like Anthony's descent into this world of Candyman. And it's kind of the same thing I was talking about with Broadcast Signal Intrusion is he gets down this rabbit hole and he's kind of following this conspiracy almost as he learns more and more about Candyman. And he kind of came across Candyman by chance, the whole thing by chance to an extent. So it's really cool to see him kind of fall down that path and his just utter descent into madness. Now, where I have some problems, and maybe where this is holding this back from being higher on my list, because at one time it was a lot higher on my list, I feel like some things are rushed here. I feel like, especially there's a, someone that's responsible for telling the Candyman story, and his character just seems kind of out of place. I also am not sure about the shared universe type thing. Although, I will say, I loved the inclusion of the elements from the first film that it's kind of become legend now amongst the uh, Cabrini Green residents and I love that we bring in characters from that first movie a little bit anyway and I really like the background they do um, about Sherman Fields I do like that whole kind of story in there I just don't know about this whole there's always this candy man there's these new candy mans we're creating a new candy man and I just don't know about the whole shared universe thing really it's just not what I was looking for out of this, and ultimately where it goes is not at all what I was looking for out of this. I feel like that conclusion's a little bit clunky, but I will say, um, again, I'm a huge fan of Urban Legends, so that was a win right off the bat. And another thing is the opening of this movie, I think, with Anthony's art and that whole scene, and their scene in a bathroom that's pretty nuts. I do like that stuff. And I like that there's almost no prisoners taken in this movie 
the actual like Candyman kind of slashing action in this movie is really good right up there with the filmmaking maybe i'm coming around a little more on this movie as i think about it but i think those cons ultimately hold it back from being a truly great film i think it's still a really good film but i still like the original a little better all right time to get awkward um we've got at number 19 the stylist and this was directed by jill gavargzian gavargzian i don't know These names are really testing me tonight. Claire is a lonely hairstylist who secretly murders and scalps her clients. When Olivia makes the well-intentioned mistake of asking Claire to style her hair for her wedding, she becomes dangerously obsessed and her sanity starts to slip away with bloody consequences. Okay, so where do I begin with the stylist? It's a really cool concept. And I love that it's this slasher-type film set with the hairstylist as the villain and you know this right off the bat there's no hiding or disguising this you know something's up here yeah Bria Grant asked her hairstylist to to do the hair at the wedding um, that she's going to have and her obsession and clinginess just gets so insane but you get to see like all the moments of it and where is misery it's that kind of level of attachment and that kind of level of clinginess and stalkerishness but it gets so much more awkward and it's she's just so awkward um i think they go out for drinks at one point and it's very awkward she confronts her like in a parking lot and it's very awkward that is horrific enough for me um i just cannot take these awkward situations and this one's definitely that i've talked at length about how i cannot stand the i just can't stand it within me like that's it just gets to me the awkwardness so if you have a problem with that you might have a little issue watching this film given that the rest of this film is exceptional in my eyes i love everything around it with the like i said the concept and the kills in this film are crazy and our lead character played by um, nahara townsend is also really unhinged and does a great job at playing unhinged she really has it down and I think while, yes, she makes a lot of the moments awkward, that is definitely intentional. And she also carries the film for a lot of it. Uh, and that that conclusion is nuts. Personally, for me, that was nuts. But this is one of those that was at the beginning of the year, and maybe it's going to get overlooked a little bit. And maybe a lot of people didn't see it. I know Arrow put this out exclusively on their Arrow streaming channel. Um, as well as like their Blu-ray release, of course. But maybe not a lot of people got to this. Maybe they did. I can't remember how many people I saw see this film. But it's definitely a ride, and it's definitely something different and a cool concept. So if you can get past the awkwardness, which I'm sure a lot of people can, other than me, awkwardness in a film for a prolonged period of time is like nails on a chalkboard. So that's what I thought of the stylist. I think it's really cool. Definitely worth checking out. And number 18, I've got Chahori, which is coming out of India. Um, this was a late addition to my list. I knew it wasn't going to come out until November 30th, so I knew it was going to be a little bit rushed there. This was directed by Vishal Furia, and it reads, Sakshi is eight months pregnant with her first child when she and Hermant are forced out of their home. They escape from the city and seek refuge in a house located deep inside sugarcane fields. The house is ridden with dark secrets that start unraveling as the story unfolds, posing a threat to Sakshi and her unborn child. Even as Sakshi tries to save herself and her unborn baby, 
scary sightings of three mysterious kids. That is way too much. Gosh, I like the letterboxed summaries because they are more detailed and are more representative of what the film is, but that is so long and goes into way too many details. Essentially, what I want to set out here is we have this couple and the woman is eight months pregnant and there's a situation that happens where they have to leave their home like the beginning of the synopsis was saying, they go out to this man they know. I don't know how they know this man. I didn't catch that, maybe. But he says, why don't you come out here to this isolated house where my family lives and you can get away from your troubles in the city. And once they get there, kind of weird things start to happen and we're left to wonder, is there a ghost haunting this area? What's going on? It's like this supernatural type story. And that's why I cut myself off in the synopsis, because as of when I'm recording this, not a single person on my letterbox that I'm following has seen this movie. And that is crazy to me, because there's always someone there. So if you're interested in this movie, I'm not going to be going into any kind of spoilers, like I'm not going to for any of the rest of these, but it is on Amazon Prime streaming, and I highly recommend you go check it out. It's maybe not to the level of, um, it's not really to the level of like Tumbaud, but I would say it's right in there with like Bol Bol um, from last year, which I really loved. So India's doing some good stuff um, with their horror recently. And really all of Asia has been knocking it out of the park with the emergence of Indonesia, with the continued dominance of South Korea, with India, with, I mean, just all over Asia, just putting out phenomenal films. And they really have been, I mean, they've been pretty much on their game since Japan started doing it in J-Horror. So, not surprising that another good film comes out of India. Now, why do I mention those other Asian films? Because I get a bit of an Empedagore feel here. You know, they're at these, this little housing kind of area that's just in the middle of these sugarcane fields, and you have to kind of get yourself through the sugarcane fields to get to the house. It's like a maze almost. And then once you get there, you know, there's this burned kind of this charred kind of house in the back and no one lives there and it's boarded up and you get um this woman who is taking care of Sakshi and she's a little bit she's a little bit how do I say this kind of forceful and kind of um abrasive but she's much more in line with like these old ways of thinking and the traditional stuff and there's things like she gets there and you know Sakshi um, lives in the city and they're used to like modern day stuff she gets there and she goes to eat and the woman says well not before the many we've got to eat after the men so it's already kind of a shock but she starts to you know start to fit in and feel loved by this woman and she kind of gets comfortable but and things start to turn and feel like they're not as they really seem to be I don't necessarily love when we get into it like the design of the ghost but there's a reason that the ghost looks like that, but that was one kind of negative for me. Other than that, though, we see it tackle this difficult subject, like I was talking about, where it's the blending between the traditional old way of doing things um, or belief systems and how they clash with the new modern way of life. And I think we see this all over the world. I mean, we see this still in parts of the United States. So that's a really cool theme going throughout this. And it doesn't really take a back seat to the horror action within this film either, because it's the whole driving action and the force behind the entirety of this ghost story. So Chihori was really 
a surprise for me, and I loved um, the main actor here. I think she's incredible. I think she does a fantastic job throughout the entire film, and I just love that setting. It seems like these um, Indian films that I've seen have a way of just transporting you to the setting and getting you lost in it, and it's a cool setting. Um, No bones about it. This is a very cool setting. That's definitely worth checking out. Um, It's not going to be more of your gory type horror, because I know like films like Empedagore have that in there. It's much more of this kind of scary images and scenes type ghost story horror. So definitely give that one a look, especially since I haven't really seen people watching that film yet. Number 17 is Blood Red Sky, another Netflix exclusive release there. So with Blood Red Sky, I had it on my list but I was holding off watching it until I heard the horror movie Weekly Crew really recommend this one, so I was like, okay, I gotta get on this. Um, It's directed by Peter Thorworth, and synopsis reads, A woman with a mysterious illness is forced into action when a group of terrorists attempt to hijack a transatlantic overnight flight. In order to protect her son, she will have to reveal a dark secret and unleash the inner monster she has fought to hide. So Chihori, that is how you write a synopsis. Whoever put that Chihori synopsis out there, that's how you do it. Um, You're on notice. The most interesting thing about this film is kind of that dichotomy between what's going on with, you know, we've got the hijackers and that kind of real life horror and what's going on with that other dark secret that we're talking about with the mom. And she's there with her son and she's willing to do anything to protect her son. Um, I do like the characters in this, but I don't think the emotional beats hit me quite as hard as they were intended to. At the ending there is the best that it is with these kind of beats, but anytime you have a child in danger, it kind of sets the stakes right there, and I did feel that. I did feel tension around, is the child going to be okay, and all of this, and as well as some of the other passengers. There's another passenger that I really liked. So I did like that. I just don't know if the character beats hit me as hard as, say, it did the horror movie Weekly Crew. That being said, I still love this movie, and when we get to that dark secret and what goes on with the plane, it's just such good action. Where I talked about Night Teeth, with the, it's not, it didn't hit as good for me. The action here and the scenes with, you know, once this dark secret gets revealed, very good and very engaging, and I really do like it once stuff starts to kind of go off. So you've kind of got opposing forces going on between the hijackers and something else that happens down the line. And I really love it, and I love how this film plays out. Just was missing a little bit of those character beats to go up a little higher for me. Whew. Ah. Moving on, guys, because we've got a long way to go here. Um, I'm going to start putting these things out a little quicker here. Number 16 is Bloody Hell. And Bloody Hell was another one of those early-in-the-year films that kind of, I think, got lost in the shuffle. It got a little more buzz than some of the other early-year films I saw, but... Um, really liked Bloody Hell. Um, this is directed by Alistair Grierson, and synopsis reads, A man with a mysterious past flees the country to escape his own personal hell, only to arrive somewhere much worse. In an effort to survive this new horror, he turns to his personified conscience. So that's the hook in this film, right? Is that he's talking to a corporeal form of his conscience that's really cool we get some cool aspects out of that but this movie is just the definition of fun and we get our main character who's leaving the united states after something he's did and that whole thing plays out throughout the movie so you do figure out what was going on there but he flees and's kind of going to these other countries he ends up in finland i believe 
and is taken hostage. He's abducted. Um, so this whole thing is him being abducted and how he's going to get out of it. There's some, there's a good amount of at least dark humor in this. Again, I just think it's so much fun. It takes a little while to get going, but the character building is really good. And I really do end up liking our main character and at least another character in this film. But yeah, it kind of shines when we get in there and seeing him constantly throughout this film having conversations with his conscience. We have this character, Isla. She's a member of the family that abducted him, but she kind of reveals that she has feelings for Rex, who's our main character, and states that she's always kind of been the black sheep of the family. And that's very foreboding, but um, she's definitely much more kind to Rex than the rest of the family because they're his abductors. And when she... At that point, it really starts to ramp up, and we find out why she's the black sheep of this family. So you can probably guess where this is going, but it's just such a fun movie. So highly recommend that one. Okay, we're in the top 15. At number 15, I have The Queen of Black Magic, which is an Indonesian film, and this was directed by Kimo Stambol. And also, I believe, yeah, it was written by Joko Anwar, who did Empedagor and Satan's Slaves recently. Families were terrorized at the orphanage. Someone wants them dead, apparently with black magic that is very deadly. She had... Okay, guys. All right, I guess I'm on my own for the synopsis here because IMDb and Letterboxd are terrible. Basically, you have these adults who, as children, were at this orphanage, and they're going back to kind of pay their respects to... The people that raised them and the kids at the orphanage. Well, once they get there, things don't go as planned, and it appears that some kind of black magic is involved in causing and causing terrifying events to happen to these former orphans. Yeah, this is a remake of an Indonesian film from the 80s, just as Satan Slaves was, but. This kind of got lost in the shuffle, having been released in January. I think this was my second 2021 horror release that I saw for the year, so it's been hanging on for a while. But it continues the recent line of solid Indonesian genre films. There are some generally scary moments in this film. The thing that brought it down ultimately for me and kept it from being higher are the effects go a little bit over the top at points. But you really get attached to some of the characters, and... These days, there's a lot of kind of tiptoeing around and dragging things out and slow builds in horror films. And I just feel like with this film, it just goes for it. Like a lot of other Indonesian films do is they just go for it and they don't worry about holding things back. And they're not afraid to go completely over the top if they need to. You know, there's not that line of, is this a supernatural occurrence or is everybody just imagining it? And I hate that. And I always veer towards it's real and it's supernatural. So it's a very good film. I would say it's probably on the lower end of the Indonesian films I've seen, but I think it's still a solid film that you'll enjoy watching if you can kind of put aside that over-the-top action that goes on. Okay, guys, so we're at number 14. You know what? I'm just going to throw out these synopsises and I'm going to try to give my own because they're getting a little ridiculous. <laughs> so with number 14, I have Lucky, which is a Shutter original. Um, this is directed by Natasha Kermani. And in Lucky, we basically have this author who is living with her husband and it seems like they've had some problems in the past. There's a little hinting of that. And 
she wakes up one night and there's someone in their house and the husband just is acting really nonchalantly about this. And he's like, oh yeah, that's the guy who comes and tries to kill us every night. And it's just awesome that they have this invader and they fight off this invader. And he's just so calm and cool about this because it happens all the time. And she's just freaking out and she thinks she's killed him or thinks she's injured him. And they go to call the cops and he's like, well, look behind you. There's no body there. That's the whole setup for this is there's this man who keeps coming in their house and trying to kill her. The film is really like a thinly veiled metaphor throughout. (laughs) I mean, there's not much. There's no two ways about it, you know. This man's coming to probably try to crush their marriage. It's like a metaphor for that and a metaphor for, you know, women not having voices and kind of being snuffed out by men and things. And, you know, that's what, you know, we've got this violence against women. And um, I think her books are like women to be self-reliant on themselves and things like this. So it's that's definitely the driving force. And I think that's cool. But, you know, the messages are never the the main point for me. This film is just kind of unsettling, really, because we do get this cool premise of the man breaking in all the time and she's telling the cops and they don't believe her and all this stuff and which is typical trope stuff for horror but it's just so crazy how she is so self-aware in this whole thing and she knows what's going on but nobody's believing her no one's listening to her or they just kind of play it off it's just so cool to see her keep fighting this man over and over again and you know she's fighting in her marriage and it's just insane the whole setup and premise of this We get a scene late in the movie that's extremely insane. It's kind of this parade of violence going on and really unsettling. And the whole, the whole fact, the whole premise behind this film is unsettling. So I think that's the strong points for Lucky. Now, the problem I had with Lucky is it's almost too short. It's only like an hour and 20 minutes, I think. And I think that conclusion seems kind of rushed and kind of jarring, really. The ending, I've seen this twice now this year, and the ending never got any better for me it kind of just feels weird and rushed and out of place and maybe it's supposed to feel that way maybe we're not supposed to have a sense of closure I'm sure that's the driving point here right is we're not supposed to have a sense of closure because we're supposed because this topic doesn't have a sense of closure but you know I hate that I just want to see the results or I want to see something leading me to some kind of conclusion on this and I feel like the ending is so unsatisfying for a horror film you know, Bray Grant is so good in this movie, and it's it's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. I think this is one of the higher profile releases from Shudder this year. I really enjoyed it, certainly, and it was my number one for a good chunk of the year until heavy hitters kind of started to come out and it took a little bit of a tumble and a free fall. I think if it would have had that stronger ending to hold together the film, it would have been higher on my list. Okay, number 13, and we're moving from Shudder to Netflix. There's a theme here that a lot of these films on my list are going to be on some kind of streaming service. There's some kind of original content or exclusive content. That's not a coincidence. Now, with this one, I haven't heard a whole lot of positive on this either, but I think this is a really incredible film, and I think it's a really tense film, and I think it's... I mean, from the pedigree, I felt like people would be flocking to this movie. And maybe it's not because we've just come off something that this director did a couple years ago that was straight up horror. Maybe it's a little bit of that. But this is Alejandra Aja's Oxygen. Now, Alejandra Aja is a famed director. I mean, he's got a storied past and he's done really good things, especially Crawl in 2019. Which is why I think maybe more people should have been on this one. But what you have here is the wonderful 
uh, Melanie Laurent, who was Shoshana in Inglorious Bastards. And Melanie is playing this character and who wakes up in like a cryosleep chamber and has no idea what's going on around her. Now that's scary enough as it is that she's trapped in this thing, but then she gets a warning that her oxygen supply is going to run out. So it's a really good single location film. It's basically the camera is on our star for almost the entire movie. It's close up, you're seeing her face, you're seeing all her reactions, which is such a demanding performance and she delivers so well. A lesser actor may not have done as good in this, but... That's really the driving force of this. It's a science fiction thriller, but I think it's horrifying. How <laughs> Being stuck in that situation, you're stuck in this chamber, you have no idea how to get out. Um, you're trying to call people to get them to help, and it goes through this whole thing of, you know, she thinks she might die in here. She doesn't know what happens, and we're unraveling some of that mystery as the film goes along. There's so many different genres thrown into this thing, and I think it is a truly horrifying experience. Again, this is a perishable situation, a term that Jay of the Dead loves so much. I think this would be right up his alley if he hasn't seen it yet, because one, it's Aja, and two, it's this kind of perishable situation, and it's pretty grounded. It's not, I said sci-fi, but it's pretty grounded as far as that goes. The reveal of what happens as well is pretty haunting. There's some pretty creepy moments that go on um, that kind of stick with you with this film when we're not, you know, having a close-up of the main star here. I think it's a good film. It's a claustrophobic film. It's a tense thriller. Definitely check that one out. Okay, we're at number 12, getting closer to that top 10 now. If you haven't left me yet, I'm glad you're sticking around to see what other weird things I'm going to throw in this top 25 list. So at number 12, I've got another Shudder original film, I believe, and that's Vicious Fun, directed by Cody Callahan. This is like the title would suggest, a very fun movie, and it's a nice lighter tone movie. I feel like I've had a lot of serious, very dour movies throughout this, and there's going to be even more as we get into the top 10, so it's nice to have a little bit of levity. I think we've got a run here where we're going to go for a little bit of levity before we get down into the heavy stuff and kind of stay there, but Vicious Fun is about our main character, Joel, who's kind of a horror geek. Um, I think he has his own podcast, and he's interviewing someone at the beginning, one of his favorite directors. And he's also got a thing for his roommate, and he knows his roommate went out with someone, so he follows this guy back to a bar, and is basically interrogating this guy. But he gets drunk, he gets wasted with this guy, and ends up sleeping in a closet, I believe, or a bathroom. It's somewhere. He gets locked in over the night. When he wakes up, he wanders out, and there's this self-help group going on led by David Kirkner, and he's not sure what's going on. He stumbles into this, and he's trying to pretend to be this serial killer because this is a self-help group for serial killers. The cast here is just incredible as far as that goes. I think Ari Mullen, who plays our main villain, is amazing at playing a psychopath. I mean, he's also been in I'll Take Your Dead in the Oak Room um, recently in the last few years, and he was in the TV series Orphan Black, which is where I first saw him. But really, all around, our main character, everyone in this film does a good performance. And it's a very over-the-top film, yes. And where it goes kind of after he's found out in this self-help serial killer group is pretty intense. And it takes you on a thrill ride, for sure. One thing that's really funny that kind of happens throughout the film is, at least at the beginning, is Joel is obsessed with this idea of 
it was an idea for a horror movie he was pitching to a director first and then he pitches it to the serial killer group and it's this idea of a taxi cab driver who's a serial killer or he takes people around and picks them up unsuspectingly and then kills them and slinks back into his cab and the funny thing about that is like when he's the director at first thinks it's stupid and then we get into the serial killer group and you think they're starting to believe it but then they start to pick holes in this whole thing and it kind of falls apart and it's it's all really fun and if you're looking for something much more lighthearted and to lift your mood i think vicious fun will be it for you um i love vicious fun i think it's a really strong film it's maybe a little too over the top and a little too lighthearted for some but i think it's a good film and if i'm not mistaken i think this gets pretty violent too and it definitely gets over the top with the violence so that's another selling point for it okay number 11 Number 11 is one of those that I rewatched recently. There were several on here that I rewatched because I was wasn't sure how much I liked them or not. And upon rewatch, this thing kind of catapulted back up the list. Let it be known that there are a couple on here that I have rewatched and they do hold up for me anyway. This was directed by Simon Barrett, who is involved in the VHS movies, and it is Seance. Seance is Kind of this premise that I love, and I think I've talked about it on my Euro horror stuff, um, about an all-girls school, and there's like a killer or something happening within this all-girls school. And we think it's kind of a ghost. We get this story and this kind of prank early on in a cold open where um, there was a girl who had, I believe, killed herself, and her ghost haunted this school. And it's this very much this urban legend, this myth. Well, they play a prank on one of the girls and freak her out, and she goes back to her room, and they hear her screaming, and she had fallen out of her window and died. Come back around with the same group of girls, and we get a new student coming whose name is Camille, and Camille has been trying to get into the school forever, and there's this opening, but it's the middle of the semester, so she's not really fitting in, and it's her senior year, so she's got a lot of work to do, and that's kind of the whole setup is, is there a ghost story going on, or what's going on, because girls start to pop up dead. One of the things you're probably not going to enjoy early on, if you're really a gore hound or really into that type of stuff, there's not a whole lot going on in the beginning of this film. Now, it does get there. Once we get to the finale, and I think the finale is extremely crazy and over the top and really sells the rest of the film. But it has this creepy kind of murder mystery thing going on. It is definitely a slasher type film. And you know what? While we're on that point, it really has the feeling of those 90s slashers that I thought anyway, especially when you get like the reveal of what's going on. I feel like that 90s slasher is just deep in the DNA of this film. I don't know, maybe not, but it's kind of timeless as you don't really know what time period they're in and could be any time really, but we get some good reveals as the movie goes on and really again, it's just the fact that I love it so much is because it's a throwback to those 60s and 70s kind of boarding school horror films, which very nostalgic for me. Um, it tries to walk that line between paranormal or not. It's not typical slasher where it's just, you know, straight up there is a killer. Well, I guess, and again, that's kind of what it, it's got me going back to those 90s slashers, right? It's because you've got, whether it's I Know What You Did Last Summer, where they think it's the ghost of someone or the vengeful spirit. So it definitely has that kind of feel to it. People are led to believe, like, you know, is it the ghost or is it, you know, the ghost coming back to get vengeance for these 
girls who had played a prank and led that girl to her death. Like, what's going on here? And it does a good job of unfolding the mystery, although I don't know if the mystery, if you could figure it out, because I couldn't really figure it out the second time I watched it either. So maybe I'm just dumb, but <laughs> I couldn't get it figured out. Um, so I don't know if they left enough clues or anything. I really love the relationship that we have here between Camille and Helena. They're kind of very friendly, and it seems like maybe there's something more as that leads through the movie, but I love their relationship with each other and how they play off of each other. I think it's really cool. And like I said, the ending really delivers. The ending is insane. I don't know if you would see the twist coming, and once the twist comes, there's still a lot more to go after that. So this whole conclusion and finale is very insane, and I loved it, and it kind of drove home the film for me. So if that was another fun film, in at number 10, we're in the top 10, guys. Almost home, we're getting there. <laughs> so that was another fun film for me. I think Vicious Fun, Seance, and I think The Columnist is my number 10 film, and I think that is a lot of fun as well. It's at least got some black comedy in it. This is a Dutch film from the Netherlands and was directed by Ivo van Art. This movie is about a columnist and an, and an author, and her name is Femke, I believe and she gets a lot of criticism and hate on her columns, and people are just tearing her down and saying she's awful, and it's just this typical social media online vitriol that we see all over the place. And one day she's fed up with it, and I think she realizes that one of her neighbors is one of the commenters who has been tearing her apart, and she goes off and kills him. And this kind of leads to this killing spree where she's offing all these people who are mean and vicious to her. She's tracking them down from the internet. She's going out and she's killing them. So it's almost this like dark black comedy horror film. And I say dark black because it gets pretty serious at the conclusion of this film. It's pretty much lighthearted and all this at the beginning. But it kind of gets a little, little darker at the end. Some of the running themes takes this biting look at online culture and social media and one about being completely vitriolic and mean towards people and how that affects them which this of course went in an over-the-top direction but the other thing is Femke's always preaching about this freedom of speech and everyone should have the right to say whatever they want and she's helping her daughter campaign against the head of their school to try to get you know freedom of speech in there and they can say whatever they want and she's carrying the flag for this meanwhile she's murdering people for saying stuff online that she didn't like or she thought was mean so it's so good as a satire film it, i think there's also some stuff in there about not judging a book by its cover especially with femke's new boyfriend who i love i love his character in this film um, I really like all the characters. I like the daughter. I like all the characters in this film. I think it all comes together. And that's really what, you know, there's these lighthearted pieces, but it's also interwoven with, like, serious messages and some serious violence as well. And I think that's what ultimately kept this one hanging around in my top ten. But, yeah, I really got attached to the daughter and the boyfriend in this film, and I really loved both of their characters. So... It's definitely not going to be for everyone, sure, but I think if you are into that kind of black humor satire, and there's still a good deal of horror in this. I'm not, obviously it's on my list, so it's not just a black comedy, but I think there's a good deal of horror to keep anyone involved and anyone interested in this film. At number nine, 
we have another one of my favorite subgenres, and this is the subgenre of the satanic cult that's trying to take an innocent victim. I just love that, and I love the struggle between the good and the evil. This was another one I rewatched because I wasn't sure how I felt about it, and let me tell you, it still stuck with me in that second viewing. Um, this is directed by Ivan Kavanaugh, and the film is Sun from Shudder. What's happening in Sun? Well, we get set up that this mom character, and I can't remember when exactly it's set up, but we learn that she might have had a past and she might have escaped from a cult uh, when she was younger. Well, in the beginning of the movie, her son, she's living alone with her son, and this mom, by the way, is played by Andy Matichek, who is the star of the new, or one of the stars of the new Halloween films. But she wakes up one night and goes into her son's room and... She opens the door and there's just these like hooded robed figures all standing around her son and they shut the door. And when she's finally able to go back in there, you know, she calls the police and they get involved in this and her son comes down. He's in a coma at first, but he gets this mysterious illness that no one can figure out. As the film unfolds, you're going to see just how far she'll go to protect her son and to keep him out of the clutches of this cult. Now, that's definitely not all that's going on here, and I don't want to get into spoilers in case you haven't seen this, because it's really creepy and unsettling what goes on here. It doesn't hold anything back, and we're seeing that more and more with these films. Not afraid to go there. They're not holding any punches. We definitely see this. It's pretty terrifying as a parent to think of this situation, and it's totally out of your control, and you're just doing what you can to help your son out. But it's just so bleak, and we kind of get... On top of the bleakness and the violence we see here, we also have this unreliable narrator with the mom. You don't know what's going on in her mind. You don't know if she's telling the truth, if they're gaslighting her, what's going on. But she's also having a rough time and just incredible. You admire the horrors that she goes through to protect her son and to try to help him. The I think the child actor in this, um, Luke David Blum, does a really good job because it's kind of this dual role of like you've got to turn on a dime you're this way one minute and and you're almost the complete opposite the next and he does a good job of balancing the two and being able to kind of flip on a dime i loved the performances in this movie i think they drive it home again it's very brutal and if you have kids it's probably going to be a little bit heartbreaking for you and where it goes i think it ultimately delivers on the promise of the film and goes to where it needs to be so it's pretty crazy ending and yeah um sun is definitely deserving of your time and attention if you haven't checked it out already okay so my number eight was a huge surprise i came upon this one very late in the game and that's because it released very late in the game and i was saving this one for last i think i had this last batch of like five movies or so and Chahori was one of those and made the list, and this was the very last one that I waited for, and it blew me away. Very last horror film that I watched. I cut off my list after this. It is directed by Patrick Redemont, and it is The Advent Calendar from France. What can be said about The Advent Calendar? This one came out of nowhere over on Shudder and blew me away. I started seeing some good buzz about this out there, and I was like, okay, I gotta check it out because I love the idea of an advent calendar-themed horror film. What we have here is our main character, who is a paraplegic. Um, she's in a wheelchair, and 
she kind of she lives alone with her dog and her friend comes home from Germany and she's stolen this advent calendar, this old wooden handmade advent calendar. And it comes with this set of keys and it's really elaborate and you unlock a door and you get something each day, of course, if you're not familiar with how an advent calendar works. And as we go on, more insane things start to happen when she, you know, eats these chocolates or gets something from the advent calendar. And there's this kind of creepy thing. You know, there's an inscription on the back that says, if you throw this away, itch will come for you. And itch is the main like villain, I guess, in this film. I don't necessarily love his design, but I love the whole point of itch and to kind of keep the terror there. If she's not opening it, there's an alarm that'll go off at midnight and it's telling her to open a door and like you've got a little figure of itch like popping up at the top and it's really cool. The design of this advent calendar is so cool. But anyway, as she's going on, she kind of figures out that there's, it's kind of a monkey's paw situation, right? There's different things going on. There's some rules that they read at the beginning of this. You know, you have to eat all the chocolates that come out of the calendar. You can't throw this away. There's another rule I'm forgetting right now, but there's some rules for this. And it's funny, she tries to like unlock an extra door because she's catching herself up and she's trying to unlock the door for the next day and it's jammed. So right then she's thinking it's broken, but when she's able to open it earlier, we learn that, you know, this is very much a, it almost seems like a sentient advent calendar. Like it's a very good designed advent calendar if there's some kind of mechanics doing this so she's trying she's starting to think as things happen around her that maybe there's something else up with this advent calendar but she becomes obsessed with it and obsessed with what comes out and she loses her mind and she goes down on this conspiracy trail which is awesome the visuals in this film are stunning even though i again i don't really like the design of itch but the advent calendar is designed great it's a very brutal film it doesn't hold back for sure and when do the French ever hold back in their films, really? They have had such a string of brutal films. Now, this isn't like the French extremism type stuff, but it's still a pretty hardcore film. I think the mystery of like what's going to come out next out of these advent calendar pieces is very, I think it's fun and it kind of is a driving force within this and it keeps you really engaged. And I think you're going to stay, though, for the well-written characters and kind of the escalation. And I love where this movie ends up. This is the type of ending I don't necessarily always like. I Sometimes I'm like 50-50 on this, but I think the way they did it here was good enough where I enjoyed the type of ending they did. And the lead in this is just so good. I'm not even going to attempt the name because I know I'm not going to get it. But the woman who plays Ava is incredible in her acting and she has to make all these tough choices and does a good job of selling that throughout so while this was the last film i had watched this year as far as horror goes it certainly wasn't the least and boy did it leave an impression with me i think this is perfect for this time of year christmas is most likely already passed by the time you hear this but if not it's a really good december watch maybe put it in your routine i'm not a big guy that watches like the christmas horror every year it's just not really my thing to watch christmas horror around this time of year i just kind of watch it whenever i'm not going to watch the same movies ever and ever but if you are one of those who loves to watch things like you know better watch out and black christmas and silent night deadly night every year throw this one into the rotation because it deserves it okay let's get back to the fun Um, this is supposed to be fun, right? Watching horror movies are fun, right? I don't know how this one's gonna land with people, because I've heard so many mixed things throughout this film and this set of films. You probably know where I'm going with this. Um, it was on Netflix, it was done as a trilogy, it's the Fear Street 
movies. Now, there's one in particular I'm picking here. And again, I think that there have been mixed on which one you like the best. I know a lot of people like 78 the best um, because it's got that slasher feel. Um, a lot of people like 66 the best. And with that ending, I mean, how could you really blame them? But I'm choosing 1994, which is the one that, for the most part, I'm hearing people the least high on. I love 1994, and... That's the one I love. Um, the other two, spoiler alert here, are not going to make my list. Um, they are back a little further. They're not too far out of the top 25, but they're not going to make my list. Um, directed by Lee Janiak. In this one, um, it's set in 1994, and we've got a group of teens. They're kind of discovering that there's been these events throughout history that have kind of plagued their town. And they're really trying to kind of uncover the mystery while they're stalked by this killer. I love the idea, first of all, that we get set up where there's all of these killers throughout history and they're going to come back. And we get that paid off as we go through the series. I would have liked to see even a little bit more of some of them. They introduced some really cool ones. Um, I'll tell you that. There's no shortage of imagination with this film. What I love about this is that 90s nostalgia. I love that it is kind of set in the... You've got that 90s soundtrack bumping throughout and I've heard a lot of people kind of down on the characters. Yeah, maybe the main character is my favorite, and there's another character I'm not too fond of. But I think there's some characters that I really like here. I think there's three in particular that I really ended up liking. I don't understand. I didn't dislike the main character enough as everyone else did. I mean, whatever. I'm not going to win on that one. But um, yeah, it's just I'm a sucker for horror stories about teens going through horror situations. And this one's more brutal than most. This is not a film for kids. And maybe that's what is kind of off putting about this is it's kind of set up as this like the wretched or summer of 84 or one of those type films, which again, have been very high on my list as we go through the years. I really love that type of setup and that type of story, um, something like the Clove Hitch Killer, anything like that where we have kids or teens that are put in deadly situations. But this one gets brutal, and especially the end of this is so brutal, and I did not see it coming. I didn't expect it. I was never, I never got into the Fear Street books. That was a little, it was a little ahead of my time just because... When those were coming out, I was a little too young to read them. I was obsessed with Goosebump books, and I had, oh my gosh, I, I had almost all the Goosebump books. I was lucky enough to have my mom's friend's daughter um, growing out of the Goosebumps books and kind of donating a lot to me. So I almost had a complete set due just to that. And I loved the Goosebump books, and I read all the Goosebumps books, and I watched the shows. And I've always been a fan of R.L. Stein in general. Um, things like The Haunting Hour and The Nightmare Room, those series that came out. Love those. Uh, the Goosebumps is a little too younger skewing for me to watch anymore, but Goosebumps was an important part of my childhood. And like I said, I love these situations. I love, I still watch The Haunting, I'm a grown man, and I'll watch The Haunting Hour. I'll still watch old Are You Afraid of the Dark stuff. Yeah, I think it's possible for, you know an adult to like that kind of stuff and still like brutal horror movies too. So I think that's where the melding comes together of this is where Arl Stein fans can really get that deep horror that they've wanted um, or that they're used to watching now that they've grown up, but you still get that kind of Arl Stein feel. From what I understand, I know um, Jody Horror Guy had mentioned something about this felt the closest to the Fear Street books. And I think this was his favorite too of the three. So I really appreciate that 
that he was close to the source material and thought this was the closest to the books. And I, that's not going to have any bearing on me, but I just really enjoyed this film. I really loved it. I liked the whole trilogy. I think it was good. I would love to see more of it. Um, I like those kind of stories, and I want to see more of those in general, and where those don't maybe hit with the wider horror populace. I think there's a good bit of us that still like that kind of stuff. Okay, number six. Here we go. We're getting closer, almost in that top five. Number six is a film from the UK. It really captured another piece of nostalgia for me that I didn't know I had, and I certainly wasn't alive for this time or going through this time, but I love this time period. This is directed by Prano Bailey Bond, and I'm not sure I'm saying that right like I am with any of these, but it's Censor. Censor is one that when I saw it, I immediately knew there was something special here. I love the aspect of the video nasties. And like so many have said, this is certainly not an original idea for me, but it gives you such a good look at the censors and kind of humanizing them. You know, it shows them talking to directors and they are talking um, and having conversations with directors. Yes, maybe they kind of despise some of these people and maybe they're a little high and mighty and a little too uptight but it's still so nice to see that they're not vilified and they're not treated as these mustache twirling villains Um, they are real people now this story follows Enid Baines and she works for the British Film Classification Board I guess or committee and she's there during the video nasty stuff And as you know, this was a period of time where films were just chopped to pieces in Britain. They were refused certification. They were put on ban lists. You could be sent to jail or fined for kind of distributing and circulating this stuff or even owning it. And she's kind of got this nickname of Little Miss Perfect because she's known for her strictness of cutting anything that's violent out of these films. And she's really, really against that on paper, at least. But we start to see... That And there was something where, you know, her sister went missing and it's been a while and they've kind of called off the search and her parents are trying to like get her over that. But it's clear that she's still thinking about her sister. And what starts to happen is she becomes obsessed because she thinks she sees her sister. She kind of gets drugged through the mud or like drags herself through the mud because she passed a film that was linked to a guy murdering his family. So she's kind of down and this producer comes to her and says this director has specifically requested for her to watch this film. She watches this film, and I think it's called Don't Go Into the Church, which is an incredible title. I would watch this movie. She thinks she sees her sister in it, and it seems to kind of link up with the events that led to her sister's disappearance. So she's thinking that her sister is alive, or at least that this director knows um, what's going on with her sister. So she goes down this path of watching all these violent films and she starts getting obsessed with it. And she's going down this paranoia filled rabbit hole of trying to figure out where her sister really, what really happened to her sister. It's pretty crazy in that regard. There's this film set later on in the movie that the director is setting up. And my gosh, it's right out of, it seems like it is just one of those video nasties that would have came out in the 70s and 80s, and it really transports you back to a time. But at some point, we start to see the lines blur between what is reality and what isn't, what's in Enid's head and what isn't. The conclusion is just so insane, and I love it. It's really emulating the same video nasties that 
it's supposed to kind of be about and the best way I can describe as this movie goes along is kind of a fever dream and it doesn't really let up until the end of the film so love censor there's so much love out there about censor so I don't think I need to go on and on about censor but really great film and definitely deserves to be checked out at this point I'm sure you're just dying to know Trey you said yeah there'd be big budget movies coming up later in this list where are they well we're going to get a bit of a run here in the top five, not to kind of spoil anything, because you might not know which ones I'm talking about, but you probably do, but you might not. So I think the theaters kind of recovered for horror. There were all these films that we were waiting on later in the year. There were certainly some in the beginning of the year, yeah, but later on in the year, we just got a barrage of horror movies, especially around October. There are, and these aren't all theater films, but there are in my top five four of the films were released in September or October. So we definitely, my list definitely got shaped and changed as October came in because October was huge this year. There was so much out in September too. There was so much leading up to Halloween that was just unleashed because I was kind of feeling uneasy about the year until we got into September and then it exploded for me. So really happy that happened. And at number five, we're going to get a very atmospheric film. That is the only way I know how to describe it because it is shot so beautifully well. And that is Scott Cooper's Antlers. Antlers is based on this Wendigo um, legend among the Native American tribes. And I love the Wendigo. I love the whole legend surrounding the Wendigo and what happens. And it's very much a cautionary tale. And I wish we would see more Wendigo stuff. And maybe there is, and I haven't explored it much. I know the 2015 video game um, Until Dawn kind of explores the legend of the Wendigo. And that's really cool. And I think this film nails the Wendigo. With other things like Sasquatch or werewolf movies or anything like that, we're still kind of waiting on the next great movie. With Sasquatch, we're kind of waiting on the the great movie, like the one that's really high in everyone's mind. I think the Wendigo nails it with its first, you know, big foray into that legend. I think the design of the creature in this is so incredible. I don't necessarily like some of the effects in the middle of, like, it's kind of like in a transformative period or something along those lines. I don't necessarily like that. But the end design of the Wendigo is terrifying and I love it. I will not talk enough about this. Definitely in that beastly freak category, this is an incredible design done on this monster. Let's just start with that. But this really follows. Carrie Russell is a teacher in this small town. She's come back to the small town in Oregon? Oregon? Oregon. I think Oregon. And she's teaching and she has this boy in class that she notices some weird things are going on. Like no one's seen his brother around. His brother's not going to school. His dad's kind of been secluded. So she knows something's going on. And we do get a scene with the dad and the brother early on in the film that kind of explains what's happening to them. She lives with her brother who has kind of stayed in this town his whole life and he's a police officer. And the whole movie is basically about her trying to help this boy and kind of figure out what's going on in his life. And it's really sad because it's set in this town where, you know, there's definitely drug problems and it's definitely this rural type of town where people aren't always the best to their children. And she's anticipating there's some kind of abuse going on one way or another. And she's trying her best to try to help this boy out. And what's happening to this guy 
is so heartbreaking. Like what he has to go through and just what he does, it's so heartbreaking. I think you get the feeling like, yeah, maybe the dad's not the best guy, but I think he really did care for his kids. And I think that's that's evident here and it just makes it even more sad of what happened to him and the brother character. Everything else is icing on the cake, but the real main character in this film is the atmosphere because this is shot so beautifully and there's such great shots, these wide shots of this Pacific Northwest and everything in this movie is shot so well and you just get this certain feeling that it transports you to a certain place and I can't, I can't go on enough about that. I think maybe it takes a little bit to get to the true horror and maybe some of it doesn't necessarily happen in your face. But I think this is a pretty brutal film and there are a couple scenes here that are pretty intense. So especially one that involves a principal. Man, did this movie just grab me. Um, my only kind of negative about this film is that the there's a little storyline kind of played out with Carrie Russell and her brother in this film. It doesn't really it's kind of a little shoehorned it seems like it's thrown in and I don't think it was fully realized maybe it got cut or something but I don't think it fully hit for me and it didn't fully play in but I've seen very mixed things on this movie I think most people at least enjoy it this was my number one most anticipated film coming into 2020 and 2021 so it turned out to be really good for me and I really enjoyed this movie I would urge you um, it's most definitely out of theaters now but once it comes home, if you get a chance, go see Antlers because this is one that did almost nothing at the box office. And it's so, it was so sad to me that people chose to see, you know, Halloween Kills in droves. I mean, I think there were people that went multiple times in the theaters and saw that movie. And we had just a couple films at the back end of October that were so much more creative and new things, new ideas. And I, and they just did not get the attention they deserved. That's unfortunate, but hey, you only have a limited amount of time and money to go to the theater, and you go, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to see. You see what you want, you see what you like, and I 100% respect that, because I have to pick and choose too. But when I picked and chose, I was like, well, I can watch Halloween at home. There's some other movies that are coming out in the theater that I'm not going to be able to watch at home for a while, because I'm not paying 20 bucks to see something on PVOD either, but... Anyway, I digress on that. Please go support Antlers if you can. Um, this was produced by Guillermo del Toro, so you know it's going to be a movie. Yeah, those are kind of hit or miss, right? We, I mean, he's attached his name to things like Mama and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which I, I like those. And I think Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is, it's okay too. So I don't dislike, at least you're going to get some interesting stuff when Guillermo set on to produce. You know he's got that eye for some interesting stuff, so... That was number five. All right, and I think we're going to keep it divisive with this next pick. I didn't know what to expect out of this movie. It was a new idea by a director that I mixed on for sure. You know, there's been one set of films that this guy has done that I've liked. Everything else I've uh, been kind of meh on. Um, not really, not really like <laughs> the biggest fan of the work here. But this movie really hit me and... If you haven't figured it out, you probably know what I'm talking about, but it's James Wan's Malignant. Again, James Wan is a very divisive figure for me. I've never been a huge fan of the Saul franchise. Um, I like the Conjuring franchise, don't like Insidious. I mean, Insidious is okay, but never, I mean, Aquaman's pretty good, but <laughs> James Wan is not my, 
he's not one of my big directors. So I didn't know what to expect. I was trying to avoid seeing anything for this film because it was supposed to be this new idea. Um, I know they were hitting trailers heavy for this one. Um, as I was watching movies throughout the spring and summer, they were really driving this one home. But what I think we get in Malignant is an ode to Italian horror done right. I don't think it's a surprise or any kind of secret that James Wan likes these Italian horror films and he's throwing it into here. I think he said so himself. I think he said Fulci and Argento were definitely some of his influences when he's thinking of putting this movie together. And when I saw that, that's what really got me excited for this thing. He does a really good job. And whatever you want to say about Malignant, because we will get into what you probably want to say about Malignant. It is so masterfully done, and I think this film is shot so well. I think at the beginning of it, it builds so well, too. And I kind of want to, before we get too further in this, I actually do want to read the letterboxed synopsis for this, because I think it gets into that old... You can see where he's coming from when he's saying that 70s and 80s Italian horror were his um, inspirations here. Madison is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders, and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact terrifying realities. So yeah, I think that's a great throwback to those types of films. And you can just see the DNA here. And you can also, especially later on, you can see the DNA of like 70s and 80s exploitation movies as well. I think Juan does a good job. This is his ode to the past. If everything else he's done is kind of a look forward to the future, and he's doing modern filmmaking, this is him giving a nod back to those older films, and I loved it. The build here is so great. You, uh, you've you got Madison who's seen these visions of people being murdered, and she's not sure if she's having like psychotic episodes or anything like that. The mystery starts to kind of unravel itself as we go down through, and once that mystery is unraveled, my gosh, does this thing go off. I'm telling you right now, the third act of this movie is insane, and I I wrote this once I saw it over on Twitter that the third act is going to be very polarizing and I think the third act is where it's going to lose people or people are going to be all in. I don't think there's an in-between on Malignant. There might be some in-between. I think I think Pastor Matt Rawlings is maybe a more in-between on this, liked it, but I think for the most part it's either hate or you love it and I think that third act probably powers a lot of how you feel about the movie. I, I don't know. I think it. I applaud it for going off the rails and kind of doing its own thing and not being afraid to go where it goes. But I found it fun and I loved it and I found it just this homage to what has come before. And he's really tricking the studio, right? Because he's taking... Maybe he's not. Maybe they knew exactly what they were doing. Maybe he has earned it and he probably has over there at Warner Brothers. He's done some good work. But... We're taking this director who's done a Fast and the Furious movie. He's done Aquaman. He's done huge franchises like The Conjuring and Saw. So maybe he's deserved a little bit of a leeway, but they kind of just let him go crazy with this movie. And I respect so much that Warner Brothers lets this thing get out because this is not a mainstream movie. And this is not, this is something you would have seen in the grindhouse back in the eighties or in the drive-in. And I just love it for that. Again, this is going to be a very divisive film, but with that Italian DNA in there, it just hits so hard for me. And the mystery all leading up is so great. And then once you have the turn again, it's not my favorite. It's still a little hokey. There's a reason why it's number four and not number one, but 
for the most part, this movie is creative and imaginative. I mean, yes, it's playing off of what has been done in the past, but we haven't seen it in a long time, and we certainly haven't seen it from a major distributor in a long time. So, I don't know. I stand firmly in the malignant is great field, and I know there's several people out there that'll agree with me, especially Ian Urza, who loved this film, I know. I think it's very polarizing and... That's okay. I would rather love or hate a film than just be in the middle of the road on it. So that's Malignant. Let's move on from Malignant. Number three, if you've been paying attention and listening to anything I've done, you've probably know that this one was going to be here, especially since it hasn't shown up yet. Number three blew me away. And it was that one international film that really took hold of me and kind of shook me this year and this is the really only film to scare me for the most part there have been some creepy moments but there's some creepier moments here and like I've said before it seems like I almost have to go to these international films to get scared anymore I maybe it's like a just a different culture thing like you're not used to this so when it hits you it kind of gets you but number three is on shutter exclusively and it was directed by Banjong Pisathanakun. Yeah, that one. That one's tough. Um, these names are getting me. Uh, it is a South Korean film, and it is The Medium. I've been shouting from the rooftops for The Medium, much like I was shouting for Impetigore last year. I absolutely adore this film. It's a rough one to watch, though, and in the third act of this, no one's safe and nothing is held back. And I got to tell you that right now, that there's some disturbing stuff that goes on in this movie. This is about a film crew who's doing a documentary on mediums. And they're doing this search throughout the entire country, it seems like, or at least the area, where they're trying to find a medium to be the subject of their documentary. And they choose Nim, who is supposedly possessed by the spirit of Bayan. And she's in this much more like rural community in South Korea basically this mockumentary where this film crew sets up all these cameras and we go through and get to learn and they interview people from Nam's family and all this stuff but what turn what starts out as a documentary to learn about like shamans or mediums ends up going to this examination of the real life possession is what we're getting and the struggle to kind of get that character back and South Korea loves these type of exorcism films they are all over South Korea. And I love it. I like to see it. Um, Keep giving it to me. I don't care if other people are not quite in line with that. But for me, I mean, this is, I know a lot of people I've seen are just kind of like, they like this film, they don't love it. For me, this is on the level of something like The Wailing. I mean, it's a little, it's a little under Train to Basan or anything like that. But I think the medium is right up there with things like The Wailing or other Big Korean films that have come out. I have a slight obsession with South Korean cinema, as I've discovered and learned. Um, you know, I usually watch about five or six Korean South Korean horror films a year. This year was a little bit lighter, and the ones that I watched I wasn't fully on board with, but the medium got me. They spend so much time building up the family and the other characters, and there's one character in particularly that I just love, and it's so depressing and sad what ends up happening to this character. And I think that's a lot of the driving force and what got me hooked early on. But just like something like The Wailing, we've got this long buildup and we learn about all these legends and lore and we learn about the family members and some of them you like, some of them you don't. But 
you can be rest assured that even some of the ones that you don't like are going to meet a rough end in this one. I mean, I'm thinking like one or two characters particularly, and it's hard to watch even for the ones you don't like necessarily, the things they have to go through. Oh man, it's it's just so it's just so intense and it kind of lulls you to sleep almost you know there's things here and there once we get to that last 30 minutes there's some like night cam footage you know that classic like setting up cameras and seeing what happens at night that's the very that's the creepy part of this film now that is where it's creepy and then about five ten minutes later it just gets completely disturbing and completely off the rails the gruesome things that happen in this finale are so intense and incredible. I mean, I've said it several times that my jaw was on the floor for pretty much that last 20 minutes of this film. I was like, what? 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 It's just like a continuous cycle of this is insane. Why is this happening? Do I love this or do I hate it? I think I love it. But yeah, it just goes that last bit is just full on balls to the wall, insanity and brutality. In the end, I just think this is such a well-done film. And pretty much consistently for the past five, six years, we've gotten a film from Asia that has just completely blown me away. And this is the one for 2021. This is my one for 2021. Um, I think they've put out some good stuff from around the... We've talked about, you know, Chihori and some other films back there. But for my money, The Medium is the best international horror film of the year. So what does that mean at this point? Old weirdo Trey's out of international horror films. He's got to pick American films, huh? Well, we've got two pretty heavy hitters at one and two, and I've went back and forth on this. I've went so back and forth on this. And one of these I was expecting to be good, and one of them I wasn't. So do you take the one that was more surprising, or do you take the one that you think you like a little bit more? I know the suspense is killing you, but at number two, and this is, again the subject of that giveaway if you send me in your top 10 list you have a chance and probably a pretty good chance because i'm telling you my last giveaway there weren't a ton of entries so you could have a pretty good chance of winning a blu-ray of a quiet place part two so get in on that but uh this was directed once again by john krasinski and really i didn't expect him to be in this film as much as he was but he played a pretty decent role in this film in like flashbacks and stuff but this is basically following the events of the first one it's right after the first one and spoilers for the first one i mean you should have seen it by now but you've got emily blunt and her three children and they're out in the world now their house has been destroyed by these creatures and they're trying to it's kind of like a road movie right they're trying to figure out a new place where they can be safe cue killian murphy's character who is always excellent in anything he's in and he's kind of this turns into kind of like a guide in this and he's he knows these people i think he was in their town i can't remember how it's been a while since i've seen this i haven't seen it since it was in theaters but he plays a good role in this and of course all the returning cast from the first movie are great in this as well i'm usually so against sequels and i'm hesitant to see them a lot unless i really liked the one before it, but Quiet Place Part 2, I was just kind of like, why? Why do we need a sequel to this? I'm not really particularly enthused by what's going to go on in this movie. I don't know. You can't really sell me on a Quiet Place Part 2. Well, I saw some good reviews coming out for this thing, so I was like, well, maybe, maybe, you know. But we lost, the big part was we lost um, Beck and Woods from the writing team, and Krasinski wrote this one himself, I believe, which I knew he helped on the first one, but I was just a little bit skeptical with that main writing team leaving. But I should have been a little more on board because we got Krasinski coming back to direct. 
that doesn't always happen with sequels. It's happening more and more now. Directors are kind of wanting to see their full vision through. And I think we're getting at least a third film, um, which may be a spinoff. I don't know if we're getting a third Quiet Place, but we are at least getting a spinoff of some sort. But he comes back and the whole cast comes back. And that should have been a sign that maybe I should have been paying attention. Well, I love A Quiet Place Part 2. There are parts of it where I love it. If you'll go back to 2018, that was my number one film of 2018. And I gave it a perfect rating. This one just fell short of a perfect rating for me. But there are things in here that I like more than the first movie. I like that they're on the road. And speaking of the road, it kind of gives you the vibes of that almost a little bit. Um, when you've got Killian Murphy's character traveling with, with Millicent Simmons. And they're going out together. Well, kind of forced to be together. But they're on this search for this fabled like um, community that is untouched by the monsters. And that's so cool to see those two together and going on this journey. And meanwhile, you've got another story going on with Emily Blunt back at their kind of temporary headquarters. And let me tell you that that piece gets pretty tense. That's kind of like the almost the down point or the scenes back at that place for me and maybe why it doesn't get perfect score. But that being out there and traveling through this wasteland and seeing how this whole world has been affected is so cool. In that first film, we were kind of confined to the town and their house and a couple other locations. But here we get to see the wide open world and we get to see how other people are trying to survive through this and what other things are going on. And I love that type of apocalypse movie where we've got these kind of themes and everything. Again, I didn't think, I think they were playing with fire trying to catch lightning in a bottle twice, but they did it here. Maybe it's my low expectations that kind of catapulted this thing up for me, but it seems like most people are, most people are receiving this well, so, or had low expectations as well and kind of being surprised by this. So I'm glad that it's finding an audience just like the first one, like we saw in the box office. It absolutely killed in the box office, and I'm so excited for this. Why was I hesitant to be excited for Halloween Kills and not this? Well, because Halloween Kills is not my number two movie of the year. We're not going to get into Halloween Kills. We're not going to get into Halloween Kills. We're celebrating. We're having a good time. Not going to get into Halloween Kills. But A Quiet Place Part 2, it, yes, it bogs down a little bit. But this world they've created around everything, it just has so much more imagination even than what we got in the first movie. And my gosh, love this movie. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about A Quiet Place Part 2. Okay, if you've been listening to me talk here forever in this end of the year episode, well, we're not close to being done really yet. Uh, we've still got number one, and then I've got some more stuff after that. Let's get this number one out of the way, the moment you've all been waiting for. Now, if you've followed me over on Twitter, if you listened to maybe another episode I had done earlier in the year, probably had a good idea of what some of my top films were going to be. Of course, that was a while ago, so maybe you forgot. I hope you forgot. It is Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Yes, the film that people are calling not a horror movie is my number one horror movie of the year. I've got a problem with you if you're calling this not a horror movie. My main thing with Last Night in Soho is that the Giallo vibes are so prevalent in this film that if you don't call this a horror movie, there are certainly tons of Giallo that you can't call horror movies. So, think about that for a minute. First off, I'm going to give a little disclaimer. I absolutely love every one of Edgar Wright's films. Um, the World's End is probably the one I like the least, but I haven't seen that in a long time, and I still love it. You know, everything from Shaun of the Dead to Hot Fuzz to Baby Driver to Scott Pilgrim, which is one of my favorite movies ever, 
I just love his entire filmography. So maybe I'm not, maybe I'm a little biased going in, okay? Um, so you can take this as you will. But this was my second most anticipated film of the year. I say first and second with that and Antlers. They were pretty close. And again, they were my most anticipated of 2020 and 2021. So they were pretty much neck and neck for most anticipated. But I'll say it again, this is a giallo. The Italian cinema influence of this film are so clear. And we've been waiting for... Edgar Wright to do this kind of focused horror film that he's never really done. He's never really done a true horror film. I mean, Shaun of the Dead is pretty much horror, but there's so much comedy in there. And this is him doing a thriller, and he chooses the Italian references. And again, maybe if you want to get my top five, all you have to do is throw in some nods to Italian horror, being an homage to Italian horror. That's not that's not completely true, because we'll see when I talk about a film here in a minute, but... The visuals in this movie are incredible, both in the modern day and in the throwback. Um, what we get here is Thomas and Mackenzie is playing a character who lives in a rural area with her grandma and she wants to go to the city. Now we know her mother um, had some mental health issues when she moved to the city and she ended up committing suicide. So her grandma's a little leery about her going to be a fashion designer at this school in London, but she goes. And pretty much everyone's a jerk there to her, except for one guy who's probably the nicest guy in the world. I can't believe that he sticks with her through all of this stuff. But she's going to be a fashion designer. She can't stay in her dorm anymore because of reasons. And she goes and moves out into this and rents this room from this older lady. And it's there when she starts falling asleep that she falls into these flashbacks or visions or waking dreams where she's embodying um, Anya Taylor-Joy's character from the 60s and kind of going through her life. And it's magical at first. And yeah, this film takes a little bit to build up to the horror. But once we get there, it's pretty horrifying um, the whole way through, I would say. And again, this is something that would come right out of a giallo. This is a modern-day giallo. You know, you throw a little bit of weirder aspects in there. I don't think giallos took this route. So I think this is even a little bit strange for that. But that is what Wright is setting out to do. Performances here are incredible from the entire cast. Not just Mackenzie and Taylor Joy, but Matt Smith and this entire supporting cast are wonderful in this film. I respect your opinion if you don't think this is a horror film. If you're not getting my take of this being a giallo but i'm seriously guys if this would have released in 1970 you would have thought it came out of italy i think it's does such a good job and there's so many good like i said visuals with this i could probably sit here and talk about this film forever and ever it's just so great we get you know her mom was crazy so is she crazy is she imagining this stuff what's going on you've got some mystery surrounding the background of some of these characters and that ending is a sight to behold. Now, the actual ending of the film, you know, the the one that happens after this big climax, I'm not a huge fan of that. I mean, I think that's a little bit too much. Um, I'm not going to say what it's too much of. Wasn't a fan of that wrapping it up that way. But that's okay. That's okay. That is probably the only thing that keeps it from being a perfect score this year. Yes, I did not give a film a perfect score as far as horror movies go. But it's very close. I wrestled with it. Edgar Wright being one of my favorite directors and coming out and doing this straight up thriller horror film that's an ode to Giallos. I love it. I love it. I couldn't have been more impressed. I was a little nervous going in that this one wasn't going to live up to expectations, but it definitely did. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes your most anticipated end up in your top five. And I had two of those in my top five. 
So that's it guys, that is the top 25 list. Let me know if you think that's too long, if that's too many movies to go into, if I spent too much time on them, and I'll think about that next year if I'm still around doing this thing. You can go see the entire list over on my personal letterbox, which I think if you just search Trey W over there, you should find it, or you can go over to my Twitter and click my link. But yeah, you can see the entire list of 105 movie horror movies that I watched this year, and shame me for all the ones that I put outside of my top 25. Okay, so I had put out this call, several calls, out on Twitter for top 10 list, and I think I had mentioned on the last episode as well. Uh, the only one I got was from David Fear over on Twitter, and he is at the Davy Dave, and appreciate you, David. He got it to me right away, and hey, would I have liked to have some more on here? Sure but I'm just going to be happy with what I got. So I'm going to go over David's list right now and see where he fell on 2021 horror movies. So at number 10, he had Hellbender. Number 9, Werewolves Within. Number 8, Halloween Kills. Number 7, Malignant. Number 6, Jacob's Wife. Number 5, Last Night in Soho. Number 4, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Number 3, Antlers. Number two, Ghostbusters, and number one, A Quiet Place Part Two. So David's got some good movies on there. I really like almost all of those movies. I did not have a chance to see Ghostbusters or Werewolves Within, but Hellbender is interesting. At number 10, I'd asked David about this, and he saw this at a film festival in Knoxville. So that's something to look forward to for 2022, because that sounds really cool and I'm really excited to see that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Hopefully next year for this episode, we'll have a lot more listeners list. I'd be happy with just growing it to two, but it was fun to see how David came down in the year, and I'd like to see how all of you come down on the year as well. I'm going to go on for just a little bit of... I mentioned I was going to mention five more films. Now, these are five underseen horror films that you might have missed. You might not have missed. You might just have seen other people review them negatively and not jumped on board. I don't think any of these, again, all of these are outside of my top 25. Um, some of them are just outside of the top 25. And honestly, looks like every single one of them is an international film. And maybe there's something to be said there. But I kind of picked five films that I think are solid. They're not anything great. You know, these are like um, 6.5, 7s, 7.5s for the most part in my book. So they're good, solid films. They just aren't getting the attention they deserve, I think. And I just wanted to shout them out real quick. We're not going to spend any great deal of time going through these. Um, number five, I would say The Swarm, which is on Netflix. I think more people outside of the circle have seen this, like just because it's on Netflix. I'm going to say the circle, I mean this horror community that we have. It's a pretty good film. Um, I like the drama and the character building, the family stuff that we see going on here. I think the horror is very light and why why this film ranks so low on my horror list. But it's a film about, you know, a, a woman who has all these locusts that she's keeping. They're struggling to live on this locust farm. And it's a French movie. She figures out something that kind of gets these locusts to reproduce faster and produce more so which the crop they're using it for like flour i believe but something goes terribly awry there and she plays a dangerous game and i like the way that that kind of unravels uh number four is skull the mask now i haven't seen this since the chattanooga film fest back in 2020 uh, but this one just released earlier this year on shutter 
and is a film from Brazil, I believe. Skull of the Mask is insane. It is over the top. It is gory. It is kind of this cheesy throwback to 80s horror films. Basically, from what I remember, there's this cursed kind of skull that brings this ancient figure back to life and is going on like a murdering spree, basically. So I don't remember a ton about this movie because I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, It's definitely up for a rewatch, but I think you'll get some enjoyment out of that. Number three, I have The Night, which is a film from Iran. And this is the other one that really got to me this year as far as creeping me out. I really like the first couple acts of this. It kind of loses its steam in the third act, but there's so many creepy moments. You know, these people are staying at this hotel um, because they kind of get lost at night and they end up kind of being stuck in this hotel and realizing that things aren't what they seem and there's kind of some nightmarish things going on with within the hotel. Now, my problem is the third act leaves you with more questions than answers. It kind of ends abruptly and it doesn't really give you what you want out of it. That being said, there's so much good in the first couple acts of this film that I definitely would recommend it. But that's the reason why it free fell for me is because of that ending. Number two is The Closet from South Korea. And I've seen a lot of people not like this film. I could see where you wouldn't like maybe the the ghost designs in this movie. But I gotta tell you, I really loved... I really loved the message behind this film and the family stuff that goes on. And I mean, like I said earlier, I'm a sucker for any of the South Korean exorcism type deals. So I really like the exorcist character in this film. And yeah, I definitely think that one's worth checking out if you're into those kind of South Korean films. I'm usually about a point higher than most people on South Korean stuff, um, except like the big South Korean films. So The Closet, your mileage may vary with that, but I really enjoyed it. And number one, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this either. The Last Matinee, which is an Argentina and Uruguay co-production. It's a throwback set in the 90s in Uruguay, and it's set in this movie theater. These people that are watching this movie are kind of trapped in this theater with a killer, and that's the main crux of the story. It's pretty creepy. There's some things I don't like about it. The ending, again, kind of loses me here. But it's so cool, it's kind of reminiscent of Demons to a little bit without that supernatural touch. So that's a really good throwback to check out if you're interested in that. Alright, so that's it. That's the end of the movies that I'm going to talk about as far as my top list of horror movies. We're going to move on to a couple other wrap-up things I want to talk about. This is something I don't hear people really talk about each year. Um, and I really want to get this out there and start doing this each year. And I hope I can, it was kind of tough to dig back through and find all the releases this year for some of these companies, but I kind of want to keep a running list next year. So it's much easier for me to do. I want to do the top five distributors slash labels. These aren't the big boys. These aren't universal or any of the studios. I want to highlight the distributors and labels, basically the people who get the rights to these films and put them out. Um, on the smaller scale, you know, the people that are putting out new stuff, the people that are putting out old stuff and revivals, and I want to kind of honor the top five. Now, it was very hard this year, and I do want to shout out, um, there's a smaller outfit called the Horror Collective. We're putting out a steady stream of genre films. I think they're usually good, but not great, but I mean, Bloody Hell was pretty high up in my list this year, and they also did Motherly and Slacks, and they did Blood Vessel from last year, which was a huge surprise, and I loved that film. 
So Horror Collective is doing some good stuff. You know, Synapse also put out an impressive like Demons 1 and 2 set, but I think that was about all they put out, so that wasn't enough for me. Of course, Scream Factory always has some good releases, but most of those we've already seen pretty good releases before. I think they did put out Krampus, um, the Naughty Cut, and that's really intriguing to me and I want to see that, but I don't think they had enough to compete with what's coming up here. And this is all subjective. This is what I think. Um, but here are my top five distributors or, you know, DVD labels or Blu-ray labels, you know, people that are putting out these physical releases and really helping keep the physical medium alive. Number five, I'm coming in with IFC Midnight, and I don't think I realized how much they released. IFC Midnight didn't put out anything great for me this year, but they put out some solid entries that were interesting and I really liked all of these. I just didn't love any of them. Um, so they didn't have any like heavy hitters like they have in the past with stuff like the Devil's Candy, but they had some good solid releases. And for this year, the ones I wanted to highlight for IFC Midnight were The Night, which I just talked about a little bit ago, Come True, uh, which is a cool story, uh, The Beta Test, and The Vigil. So I think those are all solid films and IFC Midnight did a good job of acquiring some good films this year and putting those out. Number four, and this was four because I didn't like a lot of the stuff they put out this year, or I wasn't interested, I guess, in a lot of the stuff they put out this year. But the few things that they did put out that I liked, I was really impressed by. Um, and that's Severin Films. And Severin put out An Angel for Satan, which is a Barbara Steele film that I just talked about in the last episode. And that's a really good release because I don't think we have a lot of good releases of those Barbara Steele films. Not a lot of good transfers, things like that. So I was really excited to pick that one up. And then they did a double feature of Alex de la Iglesia films, which were very hard to find. I have been trying to find Day of the Beast in a Region A release for the longest time. And finally, they put out this great Blu-ray of Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango. I'm not a huge fan of Perdita Durango, but whatever. But Day of the Beast came out, and I love that film, and I'm so glad to finally have a release. So that's kind of what pushed them over the edge for me. Number three is Dark Sky Films, which I feel like gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. But they put out one of my top 25 films, and they put out one of my underseen films out there. Um, the underseen film would be The Closet, and the top 25 film would be Broadcast Signal Intrusion. And they also put out Coming Home in the Dark, which is a really gritty and bleak thriller that came out this year, and I really liked that one too. So Dark Sky had some strength. They might not have the numbers, but they put out some strong films. Number two is, and this won't be a surprise to anybody, maybe that it's not number one, I don't know. I think one and two are pretty much miles away from everything else I saw this year. And that would be Arrow Video. Now Arrow Video put out so much stuff. They put out some Giallo Essentials collections, which have like, I think three packs of Giallo films. They put out a good Sergio Martino collection. They did some good releases, which Blue Underground doesn't always put out the best releases with their um, Argento stuff. So we had good releases of Cat Nine Tales, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and uh, Deep Red. And then we had Children of the Corn, which I usually only see in like those $5 DVD sets. So it was nice to see Children of the Corn get like a really nice release. But what I really want to commend Arrow for this year, with all that being said, um, one, they put out this huge collection for Battle Royale, the Japanese film, um, which looks incredible. Two, they put out the Gamera collections, which we've got the Heisei era and Showa era Gamera collections, which I'm a huge fan of those Heisei era Gamera films. 
So it's nice to have really good releases for both of those. Um, they put out The Stylist, which was in my top 25 this year and really liked that film. So they put out a new, something new too. And then they pulled Mill of the Stone Women out of the depths and went out and put that on a release, which I'm very excited to try and pick up from Arrow, hopefully once that goes on sale a little bit. But I'm glad they pulled that one out from the depths and really kind of saved it. Now, number one is Shudder slash RLJE Films. Now, Shudder, I tried to pull the ones that were pretty much considered, like, taken down, because Shudder has a lot of exclusive films, like The Closet, that doesn't necessarily fit into, like, their exclusives, or, or doesn't really fit into, like, their originals or anything like that. But these films um, were either released on Shudder, and Shudder was the distributor for them, or RLJE was handling the home video rights. So I know those two have a partnership that they formed a couple years ago, and they put out a lot of good stuff, and it's it's new stuff, but it's all good. We had, you know, The Advent Calendar, Sun, Seance, Vicious Fun, Lucky, Candisha, and The Medium, and all of those, oh, Queen of Black Magic, and Skull the Mask. So that's nine films from them that they had in my top 25, or in my top five underrated with the Skull the Mask. And they also had on top of that The Power, VHS 94, Superhost, Teddy, The Boy Behind the Door, An Unquiet Grave, and I liked all of those films. So that is an incredible output from Shudder this year. Yes, they had a lot of hits and misses. You're going to get a lot of hits and misses when you release a new original film almost every week of the year. But they had a lot of hits. So that was no question for me who wins it this year. So that's cool. I hope you enjoy that. I hope you, all of you collectors out there, enjoy kind of rating who's putting out the best uh, releases. Now, all these aren't out on physical releases yet for Shudder, but they are available to stream, and they have a pretty good track record of releasing almost everything on physical. It's not the greatest package. It's not going to be something like Arrow that puts together these impressive collections, but they're at least getting a physical version out there, and they're, and they're curating some really great films. Okay, I want to move on to non-horror for a minute, and talk about some of the films you know i pretty much encompass all of the horror adjacent type of stuff but i do want to shout out a few films that i really liked this year uh, first off would be writers of justice by the way which stars mad mickelson and it is a danish film and it's really good it's like this action comedy movie but it does have a lot of heart in it and it really got me right now it's hovering around my top three four you know, non-horror films. So it's a pretty good film. It's over there on Hulu. I definitely recommend that one. I think that one's been a little bit underseen. And then on top of that, what a year. We got films from some of my favorite directors of all time. I mean, you did have Last Night in Soho um, from Edgar Wright, but then we had The Last Duel from Ridley Scott, which is really a pretty superb film about this night who, you know, challenges... Another night to kind of stick up for his wife's dignity and kind of prove that she that that night committed a crime against her. It's told from three different perspectives, and then you have the end as well. And it just kind of, the three different perspectives almost feel like three different films in a way. And it's really cool to see how everyone thinks of this story. And there's some Ridley Scott-type battles in here as well. Nothing as huge as some of his other films. 
And then Nightmare Alley by Guillermo del Toro came out, and I really love that film as well. The first half is set at this carnival or, you know, sideshow type thing back around the uh, Great Depression era or a little bit after. And the first half of this is near perfect. It does sag a little bit, um, but this is basically a remake of a noir film from the 40s called Nightmare Alley, um, and that ending packs a real big punch, so definitely get out there and see Nightmare Alley. The thing that these three films have in common are, and those being, you know, Last Night in Soho, The Last Duel, and Nightmare Alley, other than being from three of my favorite directors of all time, they all flopped at the box office, so if you can support them in any way, that would be awesome. Also had Power of the Dog over on Netflix, which is this, like, drama western film, and that's a really good, slow-building film um, that has this kind of unsettling vibe around it the whole time. You're not sure what's going to happen, and I don't think I was prepared for what happened. I didn't know which way it was going to go, but it just keeps you on edge as it unravels and we go through these people's lives. So I definitely recommend that as well. As far as big-budget stuff, Justice League The Snyder Cut and... Dune and Godzilla vs. Kong were three Warner Brother releases that blew me away. Uh, Godzilla vs. Kong maybe not as much, but those first two, the Snyder Cut improves so much on that original film, and Dune is such a great, visually stunning film. So there's those, and then I have Pig, and if you haven't seen Pig with Nicolas Cage, you need to go see Pig. What else? I'd highlight Nobody on here, which is a really good action movie starring Bob Odenkirk. Suicide Squad was very good if you didn't like those other Suicide Squad movies. Basically, WB was killing it this year for me anyway. Um, and I think that James Gunn Suicide Squad movie is really good. Um, something I watched the other day was The Card Counter. And that's a really good, tense kind of drama film that kind of turns into a little bit of a thriller. But I really like The Card Counter. And for any of you fans, the last thing I'm going to shout out, anyone that's not afraid of animated type films or likes that kind of anime style... Mobile Suit Gundam Hathaway. Now, this is part one of, I think, what's going to be a trilogy over on Netflix. It's like the other Gundam entries and not really something that you need to know about other Gundam entries before you get into this. It does kind of take place in that Universal Century timeline, but you could watch this as a contained story and get enjoyment out of it. I think it's building to something really good with the other movies that are going to come next. Although, that might be a long time before we get these because it's pretty big budget as far as anime goes and could be a little while. Horror games, horror video games, because I just want this episode to keep going on and on forever. The best horror video games I played this year, there weren't a lot that came out. Um, Resident Evil Village, of course, is a fantastic game. And one of my favorite games of the year so far. Um, I think it's really cool how they kind of change up the formula there and take you into these interesting worlds. So Resident Evil Village, definitely check that one out. I'm sure you already have if you're a horror gamer. And my other one I wanted to shout out is House of Ashes. And House of Ashes is in this series of called the Dark Pictures Anthology. And I talked about Until Dawn earlier. Same team is doing these kind of anthology shorter games each year. And they've done it for the last three years. And this is by far the best one. Uh, this is set in Iraq and it's about a team that kind of gets stuck underground it's like a flashback to like 2003 or whatever when we're having the war in iraq over there and this team gets kind of drug underground and there's this dark secret that goes on but these are kind of a choose your own adventure type game you're doing mostly like button presses and making some choices of what to say uh, which way to go things to do they kind of branch off into several different 
directions where, you know, all the characters can die, none of the characters can die, one or two of the characters can die, different situations play out, and all your choices pretty much matter. So those that's a good series of games, and House of Ashes in particular is the best one. So that's about all I have on horror games. So before we go, I want to shout out some horror podcast that I really love and I've really gotten into and that I listen to on a regular basis. I'm sure I'm forgetting some and I feel so bad if I've forgotten yours, uh, but I just want to shout out a lot of things I'm listening to and hopefully if you don't already, I mean, most of the community probably knows about these, but if you don't already, just go over and check them out. Um, You've got the big hitters like Horror Movie Weekly with um, Jay of the Dead and Mr. Watson Projectile Varmint and they're over there doing... Usually weekly reviews of a horror movie that's newer, so that's cool. I got Horror Movie Podcast, which recently came back with Dr. Shock, um, Dave Becker, who I had on an episode earlier, and uh, Wolfman Josh, and and they're starting to come back, but one of the most prolific horror podcast horror movie podcasts that there has ever been. Um, we have Land of the Creeps with you know Greg Amortis and Bill Van Vegel, and again Dave Dr. Shock Becker, and they do a great job over there of covering a wide variety of topics, and they talk for hours and hours. So if you're looking for podcasts that are much longer than this one even, um, go check them out. Father and Son Watch Horror, uh, one of my very favorite podcasts. I've been there from the beginning and have loved it since the beginning. It's Pastor Matt Rawlings and his son Jackson, and they go through and discuss a different horror movie each time, and a lot of times they have guests on there, and it's a really great show. Maybe some of these other ones you haven't heard as much about. I think those are some pretty heavy hitters in the community. Phantom Galaxy with Nathan Bartlebaugh and Bill Van Vagel from Land of the Creeps. And they'll have Dave Dr. Shock Becker over there to do um, an illustrated fan spinoff where they're talking about animation. And uh, Victor Rodriguez also does some of the guest episodes as well, or guest on some of the episodes as well. Phantom Galaxy covers like a lot of genre films, so sci-fi, horror, any of that type of stuff, fantasy, they're all over the place. So if you're looking to get a little bit out of the horror realm, Phantom Galaxy's got you covered over there. Um, The DVD Infatuation podcast, which is also hosted by Dave Dr. Shock Becker, really cool podcast where he's kind of, it seems recently he's doing it monthly and he's taking a guest on there and they'll talk about a different topic each month and just go deep into these and give their list of some films they want to talk about. And it's a really cool look from a guy who knows so much about the cinema. Retro Movie Geek is uh, three guys over there kind of you know, riffing and goofing off a lot, and they struggle to stay on topic, but that's Gilman Joel, Peter Nielsen, and Daryl Taylor, and they're over there giving you the kind of the lighter side of older movie reviews. They only look at films that are 20 years old or older, and they kill it over there with Retro, retro Movie Geek if you're looking for some more lighter fare in your podcast. Um, the Watsy Party Horror Show with Dave Z and Mr. Watson and that's a really fun show over there. They've been on a little bit of a hiatus too. It seems like a lot of these shows have kind of been off and on, but definitely go over there and check them out because they get so in depth with each episode they do. It's such an undertaking and it's worth listening to. Real Talk Movie Podcast with Gabe and Wes and Tommy over there, and they're talking about all genres of films, and those guys get a little little crazy too. It's worth listening a lot of times just to hear the list that Gabe put out, but uh, that's one I've definitely been getting into more recently, and those guys have been knocking it out of the park. Um, Shapes and Shadows Podcast is kind of a short form podcast by my buddy Will or Armored Foe over there on Twitter or Instagram. 
and he's just taking one movie and talking about it, just kind of bouncing all over the place, reviewing a movie, and uh, really enjoy that, that it's just, a lot of times, it's just this quick listen that you can go in, and you can get enjoyment out of it, and just, you're done quick. It's not like some of these longer podcasts where you kind of have to sit down and commit a day or two to it, so... Um, headlong into monsters with Raul and barely Ashley over there. And they do a great job of also kind of talking about a singular movie, but they go all over the place. They're known as the ADHD of horror movie podcast because yes, they're kind of going all over the place and it might take them a little while to get into the actual topic. Check them out as well. You got freaks and psychos where we've got Andred the blind doing some in-depth studies on disability and horror. And Andred is a really smart guy. Andred just takes this kind of academic approach to disability within horror and really does a good job of breaking it down. Check that one out. And last but not least, the Evil Jelly podcast. Now that's Fright Night Feats over there, which you'd probably know from the horror movie podcast community and Rourke. And uh, sometimes you get Jessica and Miles. And they do a great job over there of kind of picking a topic and discussing more in-depth some movies within that topic. And they have a lot of fun over there too. So definitely check each and every one of those out. A lot of these are responsible for me getting into horror podcasts. And it's been fun um, also talking with some of the guys that have been popping up and are new to podcasting recently. And we're kind of going through this all together. Um, so that's really cool. Um, a good mix of the old and the new in there. You couldn't do wrong with checking any of these out. So... All right, in closing, I just want to thank all the listeners so much for making the first few months of Screaming Through the Ages great. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I'd love to interact with you more, so send me an email, send me a Twitter message, however you want to reach out to me. Just reach out to me. I love the back and forth and the conversations we can have and discussions. Especially, you know, tell me if something's really ticking you off on my top 25 list. Tell me if I've talked for way too long and you never want me to do a top 25 again. I mean, this was a this was a bit of a challenge, so um, I could understand that. It's only been a couple months now, but I really enjoy having this outlet to kind of talk about different horror movies and hopefully some horror movies that are lesser known and lesser seen and hopefully you're getting enjoyment out of that as well and getting some good recommendations. I hope you all enjoy, and I've got some big plans for 2022, including a series of those year-in-review episodes. I did one with 1990. This time, I think they'd be much more fun if we had guests and them sharing their kind of top 10 lists. So I'm hoping to have some guests come on and they pick a year and we can talk about that year and go through the box office and their top list of that year, like top 10 or whatever. So let me know if you're interested in being one of those. I've got some guests lined up, but I don't know how many I'll do of those. Probably going to be like a monthly thing where I'll put one out. But if you're interested, definitely hit me up and we'll talk about getting you on that. I've also got some good topics stirring around that I want to get out to. So got a lot planned for 2022. And other than that, I will see you in the new year with my next regularly scheduled episode, which will feature Pastor Matt Rawlings, who's come on to talk about Hammer Horror with me. So that's going to be a lot of fun to put that one out there and have another guest to bounce ideas off of and someone who's certainly much more experienced with that topic than I am. So as always, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can send an email to ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. You can go over to the website where the podcast episodes are housed at ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. I'd appreciate it if you left a review over on your podcasting service. And if you would subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it and tell your friends. Really would like for the word to get out about the podcast. Until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly 
horror movie history lesson. <laughs>